Discretionary listener participation is advised for the following pro wrestling podcast. Nowhere, man. Please listen to the Stick to Wrestling podcast. You don't know what you're missing. I want to thank the Beatles for writing that song about their favorite podcast, Stick to Wrestling, the only wicked good podcast out there. I am John McAdam, and I want to thank everyone for listening. Usually, here at Stick to Wrestling, we say give us 60 minutes, and perhaps, indeed, we'll give you a Raw Bone podcast. But in celebration of episode number 200, we are going to do a 200-minute-plus podcast. Please don't count on us doing that again for episode 300, but it is celebration time. I want to thank everyone who's ever been part of the show. I want to thank everyone for listening. Uh, we have a special episode where we have three very popular guests. Max Levy, Thomas Bain, and the great Brian Last. And this has been recorded over the last couple of weeks, so I didn't have to do 200 minutes at a time. During now and during the Max Levy segment, I want to apologize for the quality of my voice. I just got over the worst cold in human history. I haven't been able to speak in three days. I want to thank Lou and Max for being uh, flexible as far as we were supposed to do this on a Sunday. We're doing it on a Wednesday, and we're out of time. It's, it's like, do it tonight or do not do 200 minutes. So here we are. Before I get rolling, I want to invite you to be part of Six Wrestling's Facebook group. Um, if you are not part of it, you are, enjo- you are invited to join cool wrestling pictures results we sometimes go outside of it like we're having stick to wrestling fantasy baseball which i think is probably going to be no if you know what if you want to jump in you might be able to on for if you're listening to this on friday i want to invite you to follow me on twitter i just put in uh search john mcadam and put in the guy who has the stick to wrestling avatar as his avatar and finally if you would like to contribute to this show, I am at PayPal at ProWrestlingArchives at gmail.com. If you'd like to contribute any amount of money, uh, no amount is too small and certainly no amount is too large. And with that, let's go on with episode number 200 with the one and only Max Levy. Max, thank you for coming on. Oh, hey, glad to be here. And in episode 200, I'm honored to be a part of it. So looking forward to getting into this. We're glad to have you aboard. I, I We made it to 200 episodes. I'm not sure if I would have predicted that almost four years ago, but here we are. Another reason you want to be part of the Facebook group is the the backbone of this podcast is that we have been taking questions from our listeners, and the 200 minutes is only almost going to be exclusively questions from the the stick to wrestling facebook and we'll start with michael armstrong who would you have picked for sting's first feud during his first world title reign instead of black scorpion this is in 1990 max what do you think well i'm gonna go on the basis that we're gonna disqualify rick flair because he he just lost the title they'll probably do a round of house show rematches and then sting will move on and you have to look at who did wcw have at the time and who could it have reasonably brought in? And to be honest, it's not a real long list. So I think it would have been too soon to turn Luger heel again. So really, to me, it's either Barry Windham or Sid. There really aren't any other options. You know, both of them have uh, you know things they bring to the table. Sid obviously had the look. He had the intensity. 
uh, you know, had that massive size, which in 1990 fans had been trained to, you know, think of as that's what a wrestler should be and should look like. And Barry, you know, 1990 was kind of a lost year for him, but he was still an outstanding worker. And that would have been a great way to get him, uh, you know, boosted back up the ladder. So I would go with either one of those two. They kind of did something with Sid, but it got overshadowed by the whole Black Scorpion mess. It did. And what a miss that was. I, I agree that Sid would have been the, the next likely challenger, especially what they doing what they did at Halloween Havoc. I don't know why they didn't build more on the finish of Halloween Havoc, where Barry Windham comes in as a fake sting. I thought that was a, a pretty cool angle. Um, I was told at the time, I don't know how true this is, that one reason that Barry Windham had to get Sting's haircut, they were not happy with the way Barry left in 1989, and this was kind of their, okay, this is how you're going to prove your loyalty to us, Barry, by getting your hair cut really short. It was weird. You know, I'm trying to remember on the actual pay-per-view, obviously we, we knew as fans watching that it was a fake sting that came out of the, uh, the the tunnel with Sid. And then the real sting came out a few minutes later, having escaped the ropes. But yeah, you know, did they ever actually explicitly say on the broadcast that the fake sting was Barry Windham? I don't think that they did, but it's been maybe since 1990, since I saw the match. I don't think they ever explicitly said it was Barry Windham, and they immediately dropped the angle. It was act. It was it was really crazy. I mean, it's it's WCW in nineteen ninety. It's a crazy time. One mm-hmm. thing I always wondered why WCW never did this. Another possibility for me would have been either Stan Hansen or Terry Gordy. Now, of course, Stan Hansen and Terry Gordy were making a lot of money in Japan. I don't know why, like, I would have, and I was saying this in 1990, reach an agreement with Stan Hansen that, look, you'll be here for six months, you'll do two pay-per-views, X amount of televisions, X amount of house shows, and then just, and then just, uh, you know, then go back to Japan, and you will... Guess what? He actually did that, except they brought him in for Luger. Yeah. When he and Luger had the feud and he won the U.S. title, yeah, would have, why not just pair him with Sting? He clearly had no ego about losing to to Luger. And I think he's one of the few people that Ole actually liked and that liked him. So he wasn't going to complain about doing anything. He put over Luger, you know, clean right on Starkid and didn't take the belt hostage when they made him U.S. champ. <laughs> no, he didn't. And that's that. Well, the whole AWA thing is a, a long story in, in and of itself. But yeah, I mean, I, I would have done that regularly or as regularly as I could you know, realizing that, hey, this is now a pay-per-view business. Let's get guys in here to headline pay-per-views, and then we'll have Sting versus Barry Windham at the arenas. Yeah, yeah, or, you know, or save, you know, do, you know, a, you know, a little bit of, of Hanson, then you do a little bit of Gordy, and then maybe after Barry's been around for a little while and has built himself back up, then you do Sting and Barry. I, I can totally see that. Yeah. Um, I mean, I thought they had, you know, it was funny. I know that coming out of Halloween Havoc 90, they didn't know what they were going to do for Starcade. And Starcade 90 was such a mess. I mean, the whole Black Scorpion is Ric Flair. It never made sense. And then they totally buried it. I mean, people forget Black Scorpion was over at first. And then they started making mistakes with it. Yeah. Obviously, the big mistake was I don't think they started it knowing who it was going to be in the end but if they had done that uh and actually seen it through with a good reveal be it eddie gilbert or whoever um you know it it could have been a uh something that people remember a lot differently i do think that a lot of the hatred of it is retroactive or from people that were too young to have seen it just because of the ridiculous way that it ended 
Yeah, towards the middle, it looked like, you know, this was going to be no good. I mean, we had the Clash of the Champions. It did a really good rating. People wanted to know who this guy was. They did the right thing by extending it. But then it was like they had no idea what to do. And I like your idea of Eddie Gilbert. I mean, certainly better than Ric Flair. Yeah, it was it was bad, too. Plus, you know, when Flair came out there and, and, you know, nobody quite wrestles like Ric Flair. It was very obvious even before the mask came off. So even that reveal was a letdown. Yeah, he had the hair sticking out of the mask, uh, despite the fact that he got a haircut. Everyone was mm-hmm. everyone at the arena was saying, "Woo!" Yeah, yeah, it was a, a you know bad way to end. You know, with something that started with promise. But this is you know what happens when you start writing a story and telling it in the middle without knowing what the ending is going to be. Yeah, welcome to WCW in nineteen ninety. All right. John Cortez asks, 1985, Mike Monarch had a well-known battle with toxic shock syndrome. Knowing what we know about 1983, Carrie busted the airport and was covered up and went away. The story I heard uh, was Mike had a drug overdose and they used the story of toxic shock syndrome to cover it up. Any thoughts on this, Max? I'm going to say this. I don't believe the drug OD story at all. i you know, subscribe to, uh, to, you know, newspapers.com. And I'm able to go back and actually look in the Fort Worth paper, uh, from the whole time that this is going on. And it's treated like a serious news story. Um, you know, they're getting quotes from the actual physicians at, uh, I think it was Baylor university medical center. It was treated like a real deal. And for that matter, when Kerry had his motorcycle accident the next year, stories about that are treated as a real deal. When Fritz, you know, had the whole collapsing at reunion arena deal at Christmas, 1987, not treated by the paper real at all. Like their wrestling column, you know, made some comments about it really in the context of an angle. Uh, I really don't think that, you know, the physicians at that hospital and the other people associated with that hospital, no matter how much power Fritz supposedly had, uh, are going to, you know, risk their reputations and, and, you know, to the media come out and, and, you know, say something, you know, that untrue, Hey, he's got, you know, toxic shock syndrome when they're trying to, you know, cover up for a drug OD. So I'm not buying that. Well put, and those that was an excellent comment because I hadn't I hadn't thought that down that pathway. I don't think it was toxic shock syndrome either. I, I say said that before you made that argument, which makes a lot of sense. Um, I brought up Mike Von Eric with a wrestling fan who is a pharmacy tech and a non fan who is a dietitian has a, a master's in dietitian, and they they both said the same thing that. It looks like toxic shock syndrome based on everything I was telling them. Mike was getting really big, really fast. If you have Peacock, go check out Mike Von Eric right before this happened. He is getting big and we know how he's getting so big so fast. Okay. And obviously Mike, you know, he had a reputation for using recreational drugs and drinking. And when you put all of this together, according to the two medical people I spoke with, you know, that can cause toxic shock syndrome. So I do believe, I don't believe the OD story. Yeah, it's it's one of those things. I'm not sure what the origin of the story is, but just based on how it was treated in the, uh, you know, in the Dallas-Fort Worth media, and this wasn't a case where, you know, there were stories the day after he went to the hospital and then nobody said another word and, you know, theoretically something else was going on. There were stories, you know, real news stories, like in the Metro section or whatever they call it down there, you know, by real reporters, you know, treating this, you know, seriously and legitimately, I don't think that you know, the people at the paper and the people in the hospital are going to, uh, you know, put their reputations on the line to cover up for him like this. It just doesn't ring right. 
No, that that's a really excellent point. Christian Body asks, what led to the decline of managers and tag team wrestlings? Max, let's go with ma- with managers first. Well, it's a, it's a lot of things together. Um, number one, you know, look at where we were in 1988. The WWF had Heenan, it had Jimmy Hart, it had Slick. All right, it also had Fuji, but you know, what can you do? You know, Crockett had Cornette, it had Dylan. Uh, Gary Hart was there at the very end of the year. Paul Lee came in. You know, Paul Jones, he takes a lot of heat, but he served his his purpose. You know, during the Valiant feud. And what happened was when these guys started cycling out, you know, who came in and replaced them? You know, he didn't got his neck fixed and and couldn't bump anymore, and he retired from managing. You know, Slick went off to become a minister. So, what do you have? You have Lanny Poffo as the genius. You have Harvey Whippleman. You have John Tolos coming in for a few minutes as the coach. You know, Perfect was a great corner man for Flair. But he was only with Flair, and he wasn't taking bumps because he was considering taking his Lloyd's of London disability settlement. And then later on, DiBiase was a manager, and he had taken his disability policy settlement, so he couldn't bump. You know, and then WCW, they bring in Colonel Parker, who was amusing, but you know, basically a clown. You know, Humperdinck was there for a while; he had lost it. Sonny Onu wasn't any good. Harley Race, um, you know, you could cut a menacing promo, but he never quite seemed right for the role. And, and Page. You know, he really, you know, if he had just quit wrestling after being a manager, he'd be one of those guys that only the hardcores know about. And so, you know, you just ended up with like this incredible group of managers. And then the managers that followed were pretty lousy. And it's really, really easy to see why somebody in authority would say, okay, you know, we're not going to do managers anymore. Uh, At the same time, you know, the localized house show promos that the managers were so important for, you know, those ceased to exist. You know, the WWF would. Uh, you know, have Sean Mooney in the in the event center or Pettengill or whoever, and he'd say, you know, hey, there's a big card coming to Nassau Coliseum on such and such a date. And now then he throws it to comments from the two guys. And, you know, basically they have a canned uh, promo that, you know, they can just insert into every segment. They don't have to have the wrestlers cut 800 different promos. They just have whoever the host of the event center is cut 800 different intros to use the same promo. So a big reason for their existence, you know, went away. And then, you know, a few more things, you know, we ended up with a lot more valets and, you know, the first round of valets, you know, Sunshine and and Precious and Missy and, you know, to some extent, Sherry, they were great. And then after that, you end up with a bunch of pretty faces who just stand there. And then you get heel authority figures like Bischoff and McMahon. And eventually, you know, you just end up in a situation where there aren't any managers and the ones you have aren't any good. And so they don't get used or pushed. You know, Heyman has survived. You know, MVP is actually not doing too bad these days, even though they just stuck him with Omas. But, you know, other than that, you know, who is there? You know, it's just it, it doesn't you know, it just kind of faded away. And, and mostly because the quality that they needed in those spots wasn't there. I like these answers so far because yours are a little bit different than mine. I mean, my go to was the last part that you said that. They they instead of paying some dude to be out there, you know, have a girl out there, have have Sonny out there when Sonny got over as big as she got. I mean, you know, that led to more imitation of Sonny. And one thing, too, like they stopped the both the WWF and WCW stopped worrying about letting outsiders in like Trish Stratus. Um, Mm -hmm. They just stopped worrying about that. And the business had changed. And, you know, that, I, to me, that's the biggest reason. They, it, It's easier. You no, know, it's better for the promotion to have a hot blonde with silicone than to have just some other some dude like downtown Bruno out there. Yeah. And, you, and then you end up in a situation kind of like when you 
you know, make a, a Xerox copy of something and then you copy it again and again and again. You know, every time you copy it, it the quality degrades just a little bit more. So you start off with, you know, Sunny, who was actually really good and was over. And, you know, say what you will about, you know, Sable. She was as over as it gets. But then as the further you get away from them, you know, when until at this point, they hardly use valets anymore anyway. But if you get further away from them and get into the diva era of the WWE, like each successive group, you know, maybe there was one person who kind of sort of stood out and then, you know, just a dozen or or more anonymous gals that just came and went. And when they went away, nobody truly missed them because they had no impact. No, you're right. The, the novelty eventually did wear, wear off. Now, how about tag teams? What what led, do you think led to the decline of tag well, team wrestling? One of them is, I don't know why, but Vince, I think, just decided that he didn't like tag teams anymore. Almost like he thought it was hokey wrestling stuff in his continued attempts to kind of get away from the roots of it all um and you know he had the dudleys and the hardys and edging christian you know about you know 20 years ago or so and once that group rotated out you know tag teams were never quite the same big thing again you know the other problem now of course is that teams get put together because everybody wants to do the rockers split again you know maybe with you know the hope that somebody becomes sean uh, and, and rises up and then, you know, you can promote a, a feud, but it's the whole deal where you can't put a team together in April, then split them in July and expect anybody to care or anybody to get over after it's done. You know, the thing about the Rockers was they were together for six years, more than half of it in the WWF. So when they split, it really meant something. And that's part of the reason why Sean rose. And if Marty hadn't really submarined himself, I think he could have been a very big star too, but you know, it's it tag team wrestling can work. And to a great extent, it does, but it's been underutilized and, and it's just not in a position where it's drawing in, in the way that maybe it could or should. You know, you mentioned the the rockers splitting up. I mean, I remember watching Memphis wrestling in the 80s and 90s and any time they had a, a tag team, you could just count on them having a split. And more often than not, way more often than not, they did. And, and when you do that every single time, it loses its, you know, impact. Yeah, it, you, it's one of those things where if you split up a team a year or two teams a year, but you've got them about six months apart, it might work, especially if the teams have been together for a while. But, you know, this whole deal where this happens, you know, every few weeks, there's no reason for anybody to care about it. No, none whatsoever. I think the biggest reason tag team wrestling is down, Scott Hall uh, during his career, he said, hey, you don't get into the business to shoot for the middle. You shoot for the top and tag teams just have never, at least not since the 70s, have been a top attraction in wrestling. So you've got a guy like uh, like the Miz and Morrison, you put them together, but obviously it's just a step up the ladder. That's why I like tag teams like FTR and the Briscoes so much. Like That's what they want to be doing. They want to be in a tag team, but you know, you're like you're never going to headline a WrestleMania. Yeah, and there are a lot of guys out there, WWE, AEW, elsewhere, where you know some of these guys really should be in tag teams because if you split them up, even though obviously you know, hey, tag team shooting for the middle, you know these guys, you know, just like you said with FTR, Briscoes, they're not going to go higher. So why not keep the team together and then get some mileage out of it if you're the promotion? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I've talked about this on the show before, Shawn Michaels you know, wanted out of the Rockers. He felt like, you know, he had a way higher ceiling than that, and he was absolutely right. Okay, yep. Dom- Dominic Fioli writes, who do you feel is the most underappreciated booker of all time? 
And on the flip side, who is the most overrated booker of all time? What do you think, Max? Well, you know, when the idea of overrated bookers came up, two names really came to my mind. One, uh, it actually pains me to say both of them, but one of them is uh, is Gary Hart. You know, I always enjoyed his work as a as a manager. Loved him as an interview. You know, he booked world class. You know, right before the boom, and he came back in and booked them for a little while after the boom was over. And you know, there's some things about his booking to like, but you know, to the extent that he kind of you know kind of tooted his own horn in the uh, in his autobiography. Uh, you know, it, the the body of work, the evidence isn't quite there. And then the other one that I would put on the overrated side would be uh, Paul Heyman. I mean, the first few years of ECW were amazing, but, you know, he got a little bit burned out, you know, by 97 and, and things really skidded down in 98, 99 and 2000. And I don't know, I think at that point, I don't know if he was out of ideas or if he didn't feel like he had the talent to do what he thought he needed to do. But, you know, the booking in ECW got really bad. And I, I will say the first few years, it was it was good. But you know, this is a show that they didn't really do live to tape. You know, they really just took a lot of clips, edited them, edited them together. And I don't know, it just didn't hold together. It's funny, like when they got like the larger audience, that's really when the product went downhill. So I, I put them on the, uh, you know, on the uh, uh, overrated side, I guess. Oh, and overrated doesn't mean bad. It just means, you know, not as good as maybe they or some people claim. But as far as underrated is concerned, boy, um, it's so hard for me to to think about this. I mean, I don't know. Here's I guess this could be underrated. Uh, you know, in 2000, you know, the WWF had a pretty hot product. This is post Russo. Obviously, the main booker there is Vince, but they did have people behind Vince putting this whole thing together. And I can't actually tell you who it was. I can't even remember. So the fact that this person is kind of anonymous probably says that, you know, they're on the underrated side. Okay. I, I think that person was a Vince Russo. And to answer the question, he no, no, is, this is post Russo. This is, oh, after oh, he went, this is after he went to WCW. I re- I remember the guys. I can't remember the guy's name, but I remember him. He was the one that came up with Kurt angles. Um, he passed away like 15 years ago, but he came oh, wow. up with the, with the, uh, his double A thing, and he, 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 yeah, he did. A, he actually did a really good job. Uh, regarding Paul Heyman, my, um, uh, my understanding is that after the, uh, the, the pay per view, uh, barely legal, he, um, like kind of took a, his focus away from creative and kind of handed it to Tommy Dreamer with him overlooking it, obviously, and focused more on the business end. And that was a big mistake because Paul Heyman's booking was ECW in a lot of ways. And it it took a big step backward when he left or not left. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. When he handed over the reins. Yeah. I I knew Tommy always had input, but I didn't realize that he had the input to the point that Paul kind of, you know, put him at the driver's wheel uh, because yeah, there, I don't know, even, I don't even know what to say. It just, it, I watched it out of habit, really, by 99, 2000, more than out of any actual desire to watch it. Whereas before that, you know, certainly through the end of 97, it was, you know, even though it was on at one o'clock in the morning on a Saturday night here, it was appointment viewing. Wouldn't even tape it. Would just stay up to watch it because I needed to see it that bad. I I said the same thing last week that, you know, I I had I stayed up and it aired midnight on Fridays. It would be a work night for me and I'd, I'd stay up and watch it. I didn't even wait for the videotape my most underappreciated booker of all time 
is Vince Russo. And my most overrated booker of all time is Vince Russo. There are people who (laughs) swear by him that, you know, he's so polarizing. You know, there's some weird rule that you have to either love everything he did or hated everything he did. And to me, the simple reality was like, look, you know, in the 90s, in the WWF, when Vince McMahon was filtering him, he had a lot of really good stuff. And, and whether or not, you, you know, a person watching thinks it was really good and I don't think it aged well, the fact is that they, they took on WCW with all the money backing it and they beat them and they beat them with a lot of the concepts that Russo was using. And I remember when the, the big story broke out that Vince Russo didn't have a contract and got hired by WCW. I had some very smart people telling me, okay, WCW just won the won the wrestling war, or at least, you know, now has a fighting chance. And I was right for once. I'm like, well, let's see how he does with Vince Mc, you know, without Vince McMahon, you know, filtering his ideas. And he I heard him on Wrestling Observer Live, meeting Vince Russo. And he was saying stuff like, oh, you're going to see all the stuff that like Vince McMahon said no to. And I was like, you know what? There's a reason Vince McMahon said no to this stuff. And we all found out that, yep, Vince knew what he was doing. Yeah, I, that's those are both good points on the overrated and underrated side with Russo. Uh, you know, it hasn't aged all that well. But you know, ultimately, what was really important was, you know, when it aired in 98 and 99. And and it got over big. It made him a ton of money. They won the wrestling war. I thought that, you know, when he went to WCW, that that would be the thing to spark the turnaround. And, you know, it took a couple of months, but it was pretty clear that, no, that was not going to happen. Uh, Lou just e- I am me. Chris Kresge. I don't think that was him, but I could be wrong. We're talking about the guy who took took over for Russo in WWF. Let me see. Greg Savarisi. I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly. Imagine. If the WWF 84 expansion was booked like the NWO invasion, who from that era would fit the roles of Nash, Hogan, uh, Sting, and Hall? I didn't, get, I didn't get very far with this one because it's just almost impossible for me to conceive of a 1984 WWF booking itself that way. It's about as un-WWF as it gets. In fact, they really didn't do many angles at all in 1984 everybody remembers you know snooka and the coconut and whatnot but you know and 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 moolah and and albano and richter and lopper but boy you get past that stuff they weren't doing a lot of angles um i guess hogan would have to be the leader of the babyface side because you know that's why he was there uh you wouldn't be staying in the rafters that would be a bad use of him but he'd have to be your top babyface. i guess piper would probably be the leader of the heel side but I, it's one that i really can't answer because it just doesn't fit what they were and what they were doing. I mean, I actually like Greg's uh, question, um, but my answer is very similar to Max. I'll I'll read what I have right, right in front of me. My notes too complicated. Lots of fans thought WWF or their own territory was the only wrestling that existed. So I, I think if you tried to book an outside invading faction, you know, Hey, I mean, in 1984, we were used to in the WWF new guys coming in invading, you know, about once a month. You know, I Fred Blassie would bring in Ivan Koloff or Captain Lou Albano would bring in Fuji and Saito. So and they would cycle in and out. And I miss that. But like I said, I think it would be really it, you wouldn't want to book an invasion angle in 1984. No, no, it, it, it wouldn't have worked. It would have been more interesting, you know, to. uh 
you know, to do it later and to try to do it the right way, not the way that they did it. But in 1984, fans weren't really ready for it, and, and the WWF wasn't ready for it. No, uh, wrestlers switching from one promotion to another was just absolutely, it was a big deal in the 90s when, let's say, Ric Flair or Rick Rude jumped, but in, in 1984, it was not a big deal at all. Okay, Edgar Munoz, uh, Munoz Jr. asked, Hello, John Long, listener, first time submitting a question. As someone who seemed to be a bigger WCW fan than a WWF fan at the time, how did you and other WCW diehard supporters feel about Hulk Hogan not only joining WCW, but completely remaking WCW into his own playground? Um, I just want to jump in, Edgar. By the time Hogan got there, I was no longer a big-time WCW fan at all. That kind of stopped right around 1990, 1991. But, uh, as a kid, I, I grew up loving the art of wrestling because Hulkamania and not caring about WCW until I got a bit older, even though I, I was a dramatic shift uh, for JCP WCW loyalists. Why wouldn't Southern wrestling fans feel insulted? What are your thoughts, Max? You know, Hogan in the W, and, pardon me, Hogan in WCW in 94, 95, it was just, it was weird. Really, even when he went back to the WWF in 93 before WrestleMania 9 after being gone for a year, it just came off as weird. But, you know, it's like he had he worked in a certain time frame and then that time frame was over. He was gone for a little bit. And when he came back, it's like it was too soon for the for the thing that was in and then went out to come back in again. Like, kind of like, you know, music and, and, and fashion and trends and so forth. I mean, in WCW, the one thing that I think about is the fact that I don't necessarily think that Hulk Hogan really got how the WWF made him work and made him such a big star. You know, the big deal in the WWF was that he was the superhero who always won in the end, but they managed to make him look vulnerable enough uh, before that, that you could get behind him as an underdog. And in WCW, Hogan never really let himself become that underdog. He was always on top. And even when they tried to play him off as the underdog, you know, he really wasn't, you know, Brutus Beefcake, Brother Brutai, whatever you want to call him, turns on him. But, you know, he'd been messing with him and, yeah, he hit his knee, but, you know, he never cost, you know, Hogan the the title and never really did anything serious to him beyond that initial injury. It just, you know, there was nothing there. Then you had the whole Dungeon of Doom situation. You know, they tried to, you know, recreate a little bit of Hogan and Andre with the giant when he came in, but mostly, you know, it was a bunch of clowns running around, you know, Kamala and, John Tenta as the shark, and by that point, Ed Leslie was Zodiac, and you know, none of these people were threatening to him at all, and you know, he just seemed to miss what made him work. You know, he needed heels and heel managers that were strong enough that they could get over on him just enough to make him sympathetic, and nothing he did in WCW ever earned him that sympathy. You know, it carried on to when you know, it was more against you know, you know, the horsemen and, and Sullivan leading a more toned-down dungeon, but it just... Uh, you know, it just did not work. No, it didn't. And I agree with Edgar that he absolutely turned WCW into oh, yeah. his own playground. And if you are a WCW fan, I mean, there's two ways to look at it. I mean, A, this guy came in and completely took over and booked everything around himself and, you know, buried Flair and whoever else at every turn. Um, tried to tried to bury Pillman, but Pillman faked an injury. Good for Brian. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, at the same time, if you're a WCW fan, you know, if you go to an arena in 1983 or 1984, there were not a lot of people there. They couldn't even get people 
to come uh, to fill up to have enough people to look like they're strong on television. I mean, and this is with free admission and everything. Yeah, they had a house show. They weren't doing many house shows that weren't TV in 94. But in December of 94, between Christmas and New Year's, that last week of December, uh, you know, they came into Target Center where the Timberwolves play 19,000 seat building. Um, you know, for what they had at the time, they brought in people that were mostly over and were mostly good workers. You know, they had Hogan working with uh, with Avalanche, the former earthquake. You know, Sting was on the card. Yeah, I'm, of course, I'm failing to remember everybody. But the point was they brought in a, the best lineup they could bring in. Uh, but their TV was so horrible that, you know, I w- it wasn't a disaster, but there really weren't that many people there. They only opened up the lower deck. I'll bet there were maybe 6,000 fans at the most, maybe 5,000. You know, it was a situation where, you know, they just didn't know how to present the promotion, didn't know how to present Hogan, any of it. And, you know, they had talent, but they, with that lack of an idea of how to use it meant that, you know, they could never get any momentum until really, you know, started with Flair and Savage in late 95, early 96. And then the NWO got hot and it was a whole different world. Yeah, I I mean, I'll tell you, if someone had told me in 1993 that by 1997, 1998, WCW would be the top promotion, not just in the not just in the United States, but in the world, I would have laughed at them. But they got it turned around, at least temporarily. Before I get to the next question, I just want to remind everybody, I am not 100 percent. I am doing my best. Okay, Sean Ryan says, what is the one moment you experienced live? That is your biggest wow moment. What moment did you experience and not know that it was that big a moment? And what's the one moment at all you wish you had experienced live? Let, let's start with the first one, Max. What was the, the the one moment you experienced that made you say, wow, I'm here? Well, you know, it's hard to, I guess, I'm not sure if this counts necessarily for the answer, but yeah, I went to WrestleMania 24 live and, you know, got to see, you know, Shawn Michaels and Ric Flair and what, you know, even though he'd had a few matches in, T- in TNA afterwards, that really was the end of Ric Flair uh, and should have been. He shouldn't have come back, but I, I agree. Guess he, guess he needed the money. But, you know, that was kind of a big wow moment to see that match and to see the whole deal afterwards with him, you know, in tears and hugging the family and making the long walk, you know, 50 yards up the ramp to the stage set. So I, I would put that in the big wow category, just in the sense that it was a very historic moment. Did you attend the Raw the next night? I did not. I wish I had now, but I, I ended up uh, uh, flying back uh, Monday morning and, in fact, did not go. And this is by choice, and I'm glad I didn't. I did not go to the Hall of Fame on uh, uh, Saturday night. We went to Ring of Honor instead, and that was an awesome show. And when I we the deal was the Ring of Honor uh, show was at this uh, community center that was basically across the street from the arena where they were having the Hall of Fame and where they had Raw on Monday. And when we came out of the Ring of Honor show, we were absolutely stunned to see that all the cars were still in the parking lot and the arena still had people in it and that the Hall of Fame was still going. All I could think was, I don't care how great the speeches were, I could not sit there that long uh, and not completely lose my mind. So, And the Ring of Honor show was awesome, so I made the right choice there. I went to a Ring of Honor show in, what was it, 2002, so wow, almost 20 years ago. It was one of the best live shows I've ever seen. Um, as far as the biggest wow moment, I mean, mine has got to be Tito Santana pinning a magnificent Morocco in the Boston Garden and winning the Intercontinental Championship in 1984. I was stunned. Uh, I was not expecting that result. And it was just, you know, 
it was just a, a wow. I saw a, a historic confrontation. This is back when the uh, Intercontinental Championship me- meant a lot. I have to ask, what was the finish of that match? Because they never aired the finish on TV. But did something go wrong or did they just run out of tape? What, what went on there? Okay, I'm glad you asked me that. That match, I believe, was such a stinker. And I forget what the finish was, but it looked completely messed up. It was Tito coming off with a forearm, but it was like the it got messed up and Morocco had his foot on the ropes. And I think they just said, screw it, we're not going to show it. I think the match yeah. was that bad that they just they said, forget it. Sometimes that's what you got to do. <laughs> exactly. And then we have Albano saying that they it never happened and they, they hid the videotape. Morocco was never pinned, so we got that out of it. Um, As far as, like, a, a moment in wrestling that you wish you had experienced live, what would you take, Max? You know, it's not one specific moment, but I wish that you know, I could take a time machine and go back to, you know, one of those big Mid-South Superdome shows when the promotion was at its hottest, or maybe, you know, go to one of the big bash cards in Charlotte, uh, you know, when they were flying high, 85, 86, you know, just to see, you know, those promotions in their prime in person, because, you know, Crockett came here and they had some good shows here, but the shows did not draw at all. And so the atmosphere that you'd get from a big crowd wasn't there. And, you know, the UWF came in, I want to say within either days before or maybe just a couple of days after uh, Watts sold. And I didn't go, but, uh, uh, you know, people who went, you know, said that there were maybe, you know, 500 people in the crowd, if that. And just the idea of being able to see those promotions, you know, in their proper environment. I was about to ask if you went to that UWF show in 1987, and I I, I know someone, oh, Brad Breitzman, who was yeah, there. Yeah, he was, who commented about the crowd. Yeah, he said the front rows were not even full. And I was watching some old 1987 Mid-South, and I saw a TV taping from uh, Fort Worth, and you could tell there was, like, nobody in the crowd. I mean, I remember being very surprised when Bill Watts you know, sold the UWF to Crockett and hearing that he was going to to fold the promotion if he couldn't sell it and being like, wow, you know, that that I'm taken aback by that. And like you watch the footage and that sink was that ship was sinking. Yeah, I don't know why they I, I guess I know why they wanted to you know, take over Dallas Fort Worth. But those Fort Worth TV shows they did for Power Pro Wrestling, it was really a strange thing to do. I mean, you know, they kept that arena really dark. So, you know, you look and you see, like, the first few rows look like they're empty. Well, I've seen pictures of the arena, you know, in the daytime and when it's fully lit up. And it's not like they had, like, a huge arena behind them that was, that was you know, empty. It was, like, a, basically another, you know, Dallas-Fort Worth, you know, pro wrestling dump, like the Sportatorium and, you know, kind of like the Will Rogers Coliseum at the time. And it just looked very, I just look at it and I think, man, that's a really Bush League-looking building how could you go into dallas fort worth and run that venue and expect that you know people were going to leave the home promotion for you yeah i mean there were people on the hard cam there were people maybe uh three or four rows deep but that was it and you could see the empty seats behind them so it was a really bad look for television absolutely all right nolan lake asks what wrestler were you hyped to see when seeing them in a magazine, but you were disappointed when you actually got to see them work. Uh, what's your answer, Max? Well, this might be sacrilege to some, but Harley Race. You know, we were not an NWA area, and I did not get uh, cable. Uh, you know, we didn't get cable as a family until 
the Georgia promotion was 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 sliding. And yeah, in fact, actually, now that I think about it, I think we got cable after Black Saturday. So, you know, point is that I never really got to see Harley race in any sort of prime, but he was in every after mag, you know, one way or the other. And yeah, you know, I was a little wondering about, you know, the whole Brillo pad perm and the the weird mutton chops to mustache, but no beard thing and the big gut. But, you know, he was NWA world champion a million times, so he must be really good. And then I want to say, I think I either saw him, I can't remember if I saw him for the first time when he did that little 10 minute run in Crockett in early 86, or if it maybe even was, uh, well, then he came in, in, in here for Russell Rock to the AWA. I guess the point is, he was slow, he was methodical, and he was really boring. And it was hard for me to figure out why this guy was such a big star. I When I saw Harley race in the magazines as NWA champion, and that's you know the only way I knew him, I mean, I was the same way. I'm like, you know, how is this guy, this really old-looking guy who's got a bit of a gut, like, how is he the best in the world? But, I mean, he translated well when I saw him. The answer, I mean, the, you know, seeing him in the magazine and being disappointed I mean, I think 50% of the people out there are going to say Mil Mascaras, and I'm, I'm one of them. Uh, it, it was because he was portrayed as being so great in the magazines. I mean, every photo of him, he's up in the air doing something, so you think the matches are going to be like that, and of course they weren't. But I will say this, I, I now think Mil Mascaras is one of the most underrated wrestlers of all time because he's been called overrated so for so long. He really wasn't that bad. And again, his tag team with Dos Karras in the early 80s was one of the best I've ever seen. Yeah, you know, Mick Foley, you know, didn't have a good experience with him. And he put that into his book about, you know, Mascaras, you know, not treating him well and being selfish in the ring and overrated. And that pretty much killed Mill's reputation, whatever was left of it at that point. I don't know that anybody by then cared. But, you know, people that never really saw him and maybe still haven't seen him uh, now, you know, deride him as bad solely on the reputation that started with that book. And yeah, it, it is at the point where he's overrated. He's been overrated enough that he's now underrated. The Steve Garvey or the Pete Rose of professional wrestling. All right. <laughs> Mike Wilson asked among the former or current wrestlers or even deceased wrestlers that don't have a podcast, who do you wish did have one? And he says, my personal choices are Roddy Piper and Eddie Guerrero. Roddy Piper actually had one at one point, well, you know, before he passed away. Uh, what are your thoughts, Max? Who would you like, well, who do you wish could have had a podcast? You know, my first thought was, you know, trying to think of a wrestler now who doesn't have one that, yeah, uh, really? that I would want to hear. And like every name that would come to my head, I'd think, well, no, he has one. Or, you know, he had one a couple of years ago. I had a hard time coming up with an answer for this because there are plenty of people that, have interesting personalities, but if they're not interested in, you know, really talking about the inside of the business and, uh, you know, telling the stories and not trying to embellish stuff beyond compare, like Roddy Piper, you know, an interesting personality, but, you know, did Roddy ever, you know, sort of talk out of school about wrestling? I mean, always referring to stuff as fights and always to the end talking about it like it was real. I wouldn't think that a podcast with him would be all that interesting if that's the line he's going to take. Uh, otherwise, yeah, God, it's hard. I mean, if Randy Savage were alive and he was actually willing to talk and really go deep into stuff, just hearing about all the crazy stuff from the PAFO ICW would be interesting. But I didn't really come up with a very concrete answer. Ah, I, I kind of did. Uh, Jim Cornette has one. So but he would have been my number one if, if he didn't have one. 
Uh, my number one without Jim Cornette would be Paul Heyman. Um, I know, you know, he has a reputation of not always being 100% honest, but I mean, he is a great storyteller and he has a phenomenal mind for the business. I mean, both Jim and, and Paulie have been, I'm lucky to have been around them multiple times and they, you just, you just sit and, and learn anytime you're around them. They, they have so much to offer. Yeah. Yeah. That would be interesting. Yeah. I, I almost wonder in the case of, of Heyman that he really needs to kind of get out of the pro wrestling mainstream. You know, he just signed a WWE contract extension, so that isn't going to be anytime soon, but I almost feel like he needs to get away from the business a little bit to the point where, you know, he doesn't, care as much about bridges that he might burn uh, or saying things that are going to be political. I mean, he shoots straight on one hand, but, you know, he plays the politics as well. And if he could get away from that and speak a little more freely, I think he's another guy that would have a lot of great stories. Yeah, fully, I agree with. And, you know, not every wrestler is going to have a great podcast. Like, I'm not going to pick out anyone specifically, but a lot of the wrestlers, they, they, they just went to the towns, they did their thing, and that was it. And that was the business for them. And you know, whereas you'd have guys like Jim Cornette, Paulie, et cetera, who are more historians, who have more interesting things to say, who didn't just keep their eyes on their own paper. Well, yeah, and there are dates in history. I mean, if you pull out a calendar from whatever year, I can pick dates that were important to pro wrestling. And But if you ask me, what was I doing with, in my own life on those dates, I'd have a hard time. You know, coming up with any kind of an answer and you know for a lot of these guys it was just like you know on uh you know november 24th 1983 you know you know we had a card in greensboro you know starcade big payoff you know then we uh you know headed out to do the next town and you know the context and the and the history and the backstory of it doesn't really mean as much to them and you know if you ask me what i did on a date a year and a half ago you know i would probably say what well, was a weekday i guess i went to work you know if the weather was nice <laughs> You know, maybe I did something outside, but I wouldn't be able to tell you what was what. I'd have no insight or memories. No, I, I know what you're saying, and you're absolutely right. Um, all right, Tony Caro asks, in an alternate timeline, if 1985 Randy Savage was in the NWA in 1980, would he nudge Ric Flair from the top world championship contention? What do you think, Max? I think even 1985 Randy Savage was probably going to be a little too wild for the NWA hierarchy. And, and Flair, you know, you know, the guy could, you know, keep the bar open, but, you know, he was somebody that you could rely on and you didn't have to worry about not doing business. You know, Savage definitely compared to his 1980s self, you know, had come a long way. But I don't know that, you know, he, he, the talent was there, but I don't know if the temperament uh, and the reputation were enough at that point that somebody, you know, if you took him back to 1985 Savage to 1980, that you could bump Flair out of the position. I, I don't think so either. As great as Randy Savage was, and he was an absolute all-time great, Ric Flair was just a step ahead of him, not only in terms of ring work, not only in terms of interview, but in terms of flexibility. Like I, I, Ric Flair was a great NWA champion because he could wrestle so many different opponents, and I just don't think Randy Savage was at that level. No, no, and I remember Jerry Lawler, talking about their feud circa 84, 85, talking about how, you know, he and Savage would be building the match and building the heat. And then Randy would out of nowhere, you know, do that leap over the top rope that he would do and go to ringside and start jawing with some fan. And then he'd come back in and Lawler would say, dude, you know, you just killed the heat we were building. Now we have to start over again. And, you know, that ability to stay on course, I don't know if that was, if that was quite there. The other thing with 
Flair was, you know, I don't, maybe Savage felt the same way. I guess he was traveling the same way by the time he was in the WWF, but Flair liked all that NWA world champion travel, you know, more than maybe anybody else that was in the spot. He embraced it. Yeah. I don't know if Randy, I mean, he put up with the WWF schedule in the mid eighties, but I don't know. Would he have put up with the NWA schedule? Uh, that that WWF schedule was was crazy, and and so was Ric Flair's uh, in the eighties. I mean, the guy was constantly on the road, and you know, <laughs> from what I understand, he got a vacation in nineteen eighty nine uh, when they did the, ter- the Terry Funk angle. And I have been told Flair was more or less going crazy, uh, having to spend five or six weeks at home. But anyway, James Kennedy asked the greatest wrestling entrance music, individual or tag team. His is Perfect Strangers, uh, the ECW Triple Threat. I had for completely forgotten about that song when ECW had started using it. But Max, what is your greatest wrestling entrance music? Well, it, it got kind of reconfirmed for me over the weekend. But Austin's theme, when the glass breaks and the guitar kicks in, the fans just go insane. And you know who it is and you know you know what's going to happen. and uh, you know, it fits him so perfectly. I, I've got to put it at number one. I'll put, you know, the, the, uh, Hulk Hogan, real American up there. I'll put Ric Flair's, uh, you know, 2001 space odyssey, whatever the, the piece is actually called up there, uh, as well. But you know, to me, it doesn't have to be a well-known rock song, uh, or anything, you know, that, you know, has even lyrics to it. Just, it's got to fit the vibe. It's got to be something you remember and makes an impact. And, you know, Austin with that theme, you know, it was, it was just perfect. Some people don't know this. Hulk Hogan's Real American was originally going to go or originally did go to Barry Windham and Mike Rotundo. And someone came up with the idea that, hey, this is the music. They had this um, from the first wrestling album that Hulk Hogan already had a theme and it was just nowhere near as good as Real American for him. Yeah, they were trying to make it a little bit like the uh, Eye of the Tiger without it being like Eye of the Tiger. In fact, they even interpolated a few notes from Eye of the Tiger in 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 the piece somewhere, and it didn't have the same vibe. And yeah, it was billed as Hulk Hogan's theme on the wrestling album, and they used it as a theme song for the cartoon show. Uh, but I don't think he used it at the arenas more than uh, a few weeks because Barry Windham was gone so quickly after that record came out that they were able to move Real American right over to him, and you know nobody knew the difference. Happy accidents do happen when when Barry left and that and Hulk managed to land that theme music. Mine is either my time, uh, which Triple H came out to in the late nineties, or the the Generation X theme song. That video, oh, yeah, I was I about that one. I remember when you know they did the Montreal uh, you know screw job, and then on the live broadcast, you know Survivor Series ended, and then they would always have a commercial right after it for the next month's pay per view. And the next month was In Your House, Degeneration X. And that was the debut of the Degeneration X song and the debut of the uh, you know video that they would use for the Titantron entrance. And it was like, um, I'm trying to think of the word for it. You know, it was the end of 1997, but it felt like the new millennium had started. It was like this huge leap forward. And uh, yeah, it, it fit him perfectly. And the whole presentation of it was great. I cannot imagine a kid, a teenager, you know, maybe someone in their late teens, early 20s, not seeing the D generation X video, which was so cool every single week and saying, you know, I like WCW better than this. I mean, it was mm-hmm. Vince went for the young person vibe, the cool person vibe. 
and he got it. I mean, I loved that video. I loved that song. Also, an honorable mention for the first one I ever saw. First time I ever saw wrestlers come out to music was 1980, Mid-South Wrestling, when the Freebirds came out. And, I mean, I thought it was so cool. You have this group called the Fabulous Freebirds, who I had never heard of before, coming out to Leonard Skinner's Freebirds. So that definitely gets a an honorable mention from me. Absolutely. And and I thought, you know, Bad Street USA worked very well for them as well. Um, you know, Michael Hayes, you know, probably didn't have the music career ahead of him that he thought he did. But, you know, the song fit the team. And, you know, it was a, a little bit harder driving, a little bit more uh, upbeat than, uh, than, than Freebird. And it, it fit them very well also. I also like the 86 video he came out with in Mid-South Wrestling when he was totally... Totally trying to be David Lee Roth. It was a riot. Yeah, and then they had the whole deal where uh, you know, Joel Watts supposedly re-edited the video so that instead of you know the Freebirds having all the highlights, uh, you know it was them you know getting him getting slapped by Dark Journey Hayes. That is, you know, Buddy bumping like an idiot, Gordy getting body slammed, and and just making them look like complete fools while Hayes' song played in the background. I don't know if I ever laughed harder. In, at wrestling then when I, when I first saw that video and Michael Hayes' reaction, it, it started off with like, oh, Joel Watts didn't, didn't produce this video. He always tried to take credit. And then this starts rolling. as the Freebirds <laughs> yeah. like looking bad, getting their butts kicked. And then Hayes' reaction afterwards. Michael Hayes was so great in 1986. But believe it or not, if you just saw him in the 90s, you missed out. Yeah, yeah, from 1980 up to the very beginning of 88, he was unbelievable, and I don't know if anybody's ever fallen off a cliff faster or harder. Maybe Jim Duggan, but Michael Hayes yeah. is, is definitely up there. All right, Ryan Alajo asks, did Vern Gagne drop the ball by not giving Sergeant Slaughter the AWA world title in 1985 when he was still super over? What are your thoughts, Max? Oh, boy. I At one point, I thought, man, they should have given Slaughter the belt. And then I firmly went into the no, they shouldn't have. Uh, they were right not to do it category. And now I'm kind of back in the middle of not being entirely sure. You know, he was very over when he came in. You know, maybe they should have tried to ride that and make him a Hogan like, you know, superhero babyface. You know, part of the problem they had with him in the AWA is, you know, they really didn't have anybody good to feud him with until Stan Hansen. And that was at the at the bitter end. Uh, of slaughter in the AWA when you know he really wasn't over anymore and I don't know uh, it's there was a lot about the AWA in 84 and 85 that maybe they should have done but didn't a lot more radical than you know who they made world champion I'm talking about changes in the way they booked changes in the way they produced TV yeah if you make slaughter world champion in the environment they actually had in 85 I don't know that it makes really any tangible difference to the promotion I mean, my initial answer was probably not. And I said, you know, would Slaughter have even wanted that schedule? I mean, I think he was very part time in 85 and certainly 86. Uh, But then I thought about it. I'm like, well, who was a better choice than Sergeant Slaughter? You know, as much as I liked Rick Martel in 1985, Sergeant Slaughter is a better choice as AWA champion than Rick Martel. Um. And here's the thing. You would have to get Slaughter away from the way he was being booked since he had been turned babyface in 84. You can't just have evil foreign menace of the month feuding with Slaughter like Sheik and Volkov in the WWF. You have to have him feuding 
with guys like Terry Gordy, Michael Hayes, Nick Bockwinkel, not feuding, but defending the title against having a program with. So, I mean, you know what? The more I thought about it, I don't have a better AWA champion than Slaughter. But like I said, is he willing to play ball? Yeah, hard to say. I mean, he wasn't only in the AWA. I mean, he took time off to do his other endeavors. He did indies for a while. He tried to book himself. Uh, as an attraction who would go into the different territories. I know Watts used him that way. I want to say that Crockett brought him in that way at least once early on after he left the WWF. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, you know, he mostly hit the big city house shows. That's probably all you really needed him for anyway. You know, if he wasn't hitting the spot towns in Minnesota and Wisconsin, I don't think it mattered in the big picture. You know, as long as he was available for, you know, the Twin Cities, Chicago, uh, Milwaukee, you know, Denver, the Bay Area, Salt Lake City, Vegas, you know, they had, they would be getting enough of him, but I, I'm still not sure if he's actually the right guy for it. But then again, I don't know if there was a right guy. Maybe it was just too late in general, unless they just changed the entire way they ran the promotion. Yeah, it may have been too late in general because the AWA, I mean, it it, it did, people forget they did well in 84 and 85 and it was 86 mm-hmm that they really just fell down the cliff. But anyway, Jay Gruder asked a very simple question. Bruno or Pat Patterson on color commentary? Max, you've seen enough WWF from that era to answer this, right? Yes, yes. Um, you know, we weren't getting WWF on TV here when Pat was was commentating, but Bruno we, we got when he made up with them circa 84 and, and until he left. As far as Bruno or Patterson, I'll start by saying they were both bad on commentary. But if I had to pick one, I'm going to pick Pat because he was booking so he knew exactly what to push and how to push it even if he didn't always do a very good job of it uh, because of being a little bit marble mouthed on the on the mic uh you know bruno you know he did a good job of you know trying to call it like a straight sport and you know he knew you know this is the baby face i'll, I'll put him over this is the heel I'll, I'll make him look like a a dirty cheater but he didn't really understand or get into the angles very much i don't think he wanted to uh, and by the end, I think he actually hated the job. But, you know, Pat would Pat was better for what you needed out of an announcer. I agree with what you're saying. Patterson, I mean, he wasn't great, but he was, you know, I mean, Vince more or less carried the show. And, and Patterson would just do commentary. You know, so Vince would be doing two thirds of the talking. And that made it work. I mean, when Bruno came back as a commentator in 78, he stayed until about 80. No, he left in 1980 after the Zabisco feud, I mean, he was okay, but like he was just almost filling a chair. Like he often seemed disinterested. And then when they brought him back in 85, I mean, it was, I was recently watching a WWF match from that era and the match probably went five or six minutes in until Bruno said a word. And it was only because uh, McMahon asked him something and I was like, wow, Bruno's here. Yeah. You know, so I, I'm definitely going with Patterson here. Yeah, and by the time Bruno left, you know, latter part of 87 into the very early part of 88 before he walked away, you know, at that point, Vincent Jesse would call the whole match and then Bruno would, you know, voice over something on the replay. But, you know, during the match, I don't know if it was by design or if just that's what he did, but he wouldn't say a word. No, he was he was completely silent. Like I said, you know, five or six minutes in, I'm like, whoa, Bruno is here. All right. John Ware asked, have you seen any WWF footage with Chili Billy Cardle doing play by play? Max, have you seen any of this? I have not. I 
you know, it's funny. I, I seem to remember seeing like an interview. Maybe it was from Pittsburgh. I'm not sure. It was the Crusher circa 63. I, maybe Cardill was on that. I didn't know if there was even any actual match footage of him that existed. I have about four hours of heavyweight wrestling from Washington with Bill Cardell doing play-by-play. And the, the wrestlers were like Bill Watts and Argentina Apollo and Miguel Perez. And honestly, and this is, gonna, this is a terrible answer to the question, he really didn't make an impression on me. But one guy who did, I'm trying to remember his name. Who was the guy from uh, wrestling from Chicago? Was his name Russ Meyer? Do you know um, this? I think Russ Meyer. That I hear that name, and I think to myself, I think that was the guy that was like the B movie director. But maybe it was. I don't. I, when I think Chicago commentator, I think uh, Bob Luce, who I don't think any. I mean, Bob Luce was was something else. I mean, not your traditional commentator, but. I'm not sure if that's who you're thinking of, but you know, he's a guy that you know was really kind of oh, and you're kind of crusher, you know, hitting him with the with the fist. Look at the blood. The people in the amphitheater are going crazy, you know, voicing over the old films of the matches. I mean, that's okay. a character. Oh, I, I he was definitely a character. It, it was like watching him. Bob Luce was wa- like watching wrestling with your crazy uncle, who's just way yeah. too enthusiastic about it. But I, I actually liked. I actually liked him, Bob Luce, because he he was funny and there was nothing he would rather be doing. Lou has checked in with us. It is Russ Davis who did the okay. Chicago. He says Russ Meyer is the did the films with the big bazoomed women. I, I have no yeah. idea who that person is. Um, but <laughs> Russ Davis, I couldn't stand that guy. He was so condescending. I mean, whatever Bill Cardle did was way better than Russ Davis. I mean, he. You know, he would just sit there and chuckle and chortle through the matches. I know to some people this is sacrilege, but I, I thought he was so bad. Yeah, I don't have enough experience of having seen him, if I've seen him at all, to to really com- you know, comment on how good or bad he was. But he sounds like a lot of the people that did the wrestling announcing in the in the 50s and into the early 60s where, you know, the TV station or the TV network employed them and said, you're going to call the wrestling match, as opposed to later on in the territory days when Usually it was somebody coming from the promotion or somebody that the promotion had a link to, you know, who, you know, maybe they weren't completely spartaned up on everything, but they knew enough to know how to call it and not treat it like a joke uh, the way a lot of those guys did when wrestling first went on TV. And it was, oh, ha ha, it's fixed. Look at this. You know, what a what a silly thing they're doing. That sort of a deal. Yeah. Max, we have gone over an hour and I want to thank you for coming on. You were, you were a great guest as usual. Oh, hey, glad to be on. Thank you for having me, especially for show number 200 and uh, glad to come back anytime. All right. Well, no, hey, you, you put your heavy heat hitters in the cleanup spot and that's what we did for this show. Excellent. Excellent. Well, congratulations on 200. Thank you. Okay, episode 200 of Stick to Wrestling. I want to bring on one of the elite guests that we have had on the show. I personally think the show he and I did uh, with the Dave Meltzer and Ole Anderson interview from 2002, or two, it was 2003, was the best episode of Stick to Wrestling to date. Thomas Bain, thank you for coming back. Happy 200, John McAdam. Um, you know, that, that introduction, you know how... Every year on New Year's Eve when we were younger, Dick Clark had Dick Clark's Rockin' New Year's Eve. This kind of seems like whatever that CBS version was where they were on a soundstage in Hollywood. It, it, it kind of feels like that, uh, that New Year's Eve special. Uh, but all kidding aside, um, 
congratulations, John, and I look forward to being a part of this episode. Oh, thank you very much, Thomas. We're going to try to get to 200 minutes. Not today. I kind of curveballed Thomas off the air by making him think we're going to be recording for three hours and 20 minutes all in one chunk. That is not happening. We're having multiple guests. But thank you again. We are taking questions from the Stick to Wrestling universe. The first one uh, today is from Jerry Joy, and I love this question. I, I put so much thought into this. Who are the four wrestlers? that you would put on your Memphis-era Jimmy Hart's first family all-star team. Thomas, who do you got? Well, I'm not going to cheat and say Jerry Lawler because he was a part with Jimmy Hart back before uh, his leg injury. But I would go... I would go Dream Machine and Pork Chop Cash. I would go Coco Ware... And now the fourth one that that's gonna that's gonna bounce around, you know, give or take uh, the day. But if I had to go, maybe two hundred minutes right here, John. But if we go the fourth <laughs> one, I want to defer to you. Let me get back to you on that. Dead air is the worst thing you can have in a podcast. So go ahead, John. Okay, I'll tell you what. I also did not cheat. Not only no Jerry Lawler, but no Terry Funk, no Jack Briscoe, no Hulk Hogan. Guys that heart manage for like one night or two nights. They had to be real members of the first family. I also set it up so it was like a four horsemen type thing. Like I wanted certain guys in certain roles. Have to have the tag team of Bobby Eaton and Sweet Brown Sugar slash Coca Ware. One of the best tag teams of all time. I don't think they're underrated. I think enough time has gone by where people just say, hey, they're a great team, like, you know, no, instead of not knowing who they were. So that's my first two. They're the tag team of the bunch. Next is Joe LaDuke, the powerhouse of this faction. And the, the, the last one, which is actually the first one, who's going to be kind of the Ric Flair of this. I went back and forth between Eddie Gilbert, who would have been great in the role, but I ultimately went with Kevin Sullivan. I thought Kevin was at his absolute best in 1981 when he was the top guy in Jimmy Hart's first family. So there it is. Kevin Sullivan, Joe LaDuke, Bobby Eaton, and Coco Ware. And I will say, I'll, I'll go with Joe LaDuke as my fourth as well. I was, I was waffling on that, but the way you mentioned it, I, yeah, I, I'll go with LaDuke as my fourth. Okay. Uh, next up, Scotty Grace. Do you think the original plan was to have Hillbilly Jim in the corner of Mr. T and Hulk Hogan at WrestleMania 1 before he got injured. Do you have any intel on this, Thomas? I, I think, I can't help but think that the timeline's wrong, because I, I feel like the injury to Hillbilly Jim came post-WrestleMania. I think it was before, but I'm not sure. Because I, I feel like he debuted in 85 because in 84, he was still in Memphis. And I think summer of 84, he was in Memphis, but like right around, I want to say Thanksgiving 84, he started doing the fan in the stands gimmick. And, oh, look at that big hillbilly out there again. And, and more importantly, why would they have hillbilly Jim on the main event? of the biggest card of Vince McMahon's life and have Jimmy Snooker at home or Jimmy Snooker wrestling Matt Bourne or the executioner. They, they, he had to be a part of that because having Hillbilly Jim next to, you know, across from Bob Orton as the uh, ringside enforcer doesn't really add any panache to the show, but Jimmy Snooker does. 
I can't imagine. I can't. I can't see it. I. I. I've never heard this, but I. I, I think it, it seems crazy at first, but. Hillbilly Jim was really over when he first started in the WWF and Vince McMahon. Hey, it's a character that Vince McMahon created. So right there, he loves it. It's a hillbilly character. So he's going to love it. I'm going to say, I doubt that was the plan, but I wouldn't rule it out. I just think he's trying. Granted, Hillbilly Jim's his character. It got over, but at the same time, Vince McMahon has always looked his nose down to quote-unquote wrestling. So to have the biggest show of his life, to have the main event bookended with Muhammad Ali, with Billy Mart, with Liberace, and now you got Hillbilly Jim. <laughs> I, I just can't see him being in a, in a marquee spot like that for that card. Yeah, I, I kind of doubt it as well. But like I said, it, I think it's it's not impossible. And I mean, just the thought of Billy Martin partying with Liberace is, is cracking me up right now. It, it was a it was a card that, and, and we'll get into that later. So we'll uh, move on to the next question, John. All right, I I just love the vignettes of of Gene Okerlund interviewing Billy Martin, and in, in, of all places, a bar, of course. Anyway, if you know who Billy Martin is, that totally makes sense. Next up is Tracy Rosenberg. How different is the first WrestleMania if Sergeant Slaughter, Doctor D, David Schultz, the Briscoes, Adrian Adonis, Dick Murdoch, etc. We're still with the WWF by then. Thomas, any thoughts? Well, the fact is, some of these guys wouldn't even be on the show. Because when you look at it right now, unless you're going to do one of these shows like, you know, WrestleMania 2, where each match is two and a half minutes, I don't see a spot for the Briscoes. Do you have, Sergeant Slaughter would have gotten a spot on there somewhere. Would he have, you know, wrestled? I, they wouldn't have put him against Bundy because Bundy was just getting into the company. So they would, Bundy would have washed sd jones probably in any case um slaughter what do you do there do you go slaughter versus stud and put andre in the main event and that bumps mr t out no do you do andre versus uh cowboy bob orton in that regard and or do slaughter versus orton slaughter would have found a way on there the briscoes they would have been out david schultz now david schultz could have been a guy in, in maybe you make it a six-man tag or an eight-man tag and bring Snooka and Andre into the main event and have Schultz and Orton in there. There's spots for them, too. Adonis and Murdoch, I mean, unless they're fighting for the tag titles, which I, I think, given the card, they made the right call with Sheik and Volkov. I don't know what you do with those two either, John. I, I My, my answer is similar to yours. I'm not sure if the Briscoes, Adonis, and Murdoch would have gotten on the card. Um, I mean, they Adonis and Murdoch just lost the tag team titles. The Iron Sheik and Volkoff won the titles just so they could have a title change at WrestleMania that didn't involve Wendy Richter. Um, Slaughter would have had a big match. I don't know against who. I think maybe they would have brought in like a masked foreign menace or something. Thing like that for him to squ- to squash at WrestleMania. The Iron Sheik and Nikolai Volkov thing had already gotten old by not by the beginning of 1985. Um, David Schultz. My thought process has always been that Schultz, when he went after Mr. T and he tried to start a fight with Mr. T, he was trying to work himself into the main event. He was trying to get Orndorff's spot. 
And obviously that blew up in his face pretty bad. That's always been my theory. That's that's what he was trying to do. It was one of those things that really almost blackballed him from the industry because he was known as a hothead. He was known as a guy that was, for lack of a better term, the original loose cannon on cable television wrestling. And as you could see, he never got back into the WWF. He was never really spoken of again. He uh, never really had much of anything besides Memphis and then a few slots. Did he go back to the AWA eventually, John, after that, at some point in time in the mid-80s? After I that don't think he did. I don't think he ever made it back to the AWA. Yeah, you're right. It, it basically ended his career. I mean, a couple of thoughts. I mean, we're in the middle of a wrestling war, and Slaughter's, uh, Schultz is a big name. And I mean, Crockett, as far as I never knew, never took a sniff at him. And Watts, who kind of surprised I never, never took a sniff at him. But in 85, I want to say like May 1985. Sorry, I've told this story on the show before. I went to an ICW show in Bulrica, Mass. And Schultz was on it. And he had everyone in the crowd legit scared to death. And it, it took away like the heat from the show. Like everyone was like, oh, my God, this guy's nuts. And he. Don't be surprised if he comes out here and starts swinging at people. He's a guy that would do great business for a house show. You just couldn't trust him on TV to promote it. Yeah, when he was with ICW, I saw him against, uh, this was like June 1985. I saw him wrestle Ric Flair at the Rocky Point Amusement Park in Rhode Island. So... Rick Flair was doing ICW. Was that an indie shot or what was that? I think it was more of an indie shot. Like they, someone put together a show at Rocky Point and it didn't draw particularly well, but it was like one of those really weird matches that I got to see. And it made the cover of the wrestler magazine. Maybe like, do you do this? Do you do slaughter versus Volkoff? And then you bring Adonis and Murdoch in for a return match. Maybe do Junkyard versus the Iron Sheik, and then Valentine retains the Intercontinental title against uh, Tony Atlas. I could see that. I think Atlas had lost a little bit of his luster by then. I think. I think if it were me, I would have kept it simple. I would have had like a Nikolai Volkov protege, you know, the masked Russian assassin or whatever, and just have Slaughter like run through him in two minutes. And the thing about it, too, is the, the faces that had prelim matches, Steamboat and Tito, they're not, gonna, they're not going to go over David Schultz. Schultz isn't going to lay down for either of them, I can't imagine, on, on WrestleMania. So they're probably out. Um, you could do Tito and Ricky, because Tito and Ricky did tag team a little bit in 85 on the house show circuit. There's an episode on the network where Tito and Steamboat, I believe, are going against Morocco and Fuji, maybe? I, that I, sounds I right. But you could have had them... You could have had them team against Adonis and Murdoch potentially, but then again, I don't know uh, what you do with the rest of the guys in that regard. Well, the Briscoes mainly. Yeah, I, I don't think the Briscoes would have gotten on either. I mean, the first WrestleMania, it really was a bit of a glorified house show with Mr. T in the main event, and it was available on on uh, not pay-per-view, but uh, closed circuit. I remember being at the Worcester Centrum, and Buddy Rose comes out as the masked assassin or whatever he was, the executioner, and everyone in the centrum is like, you know, chanting Buddy Rose. That was how how obvious it was. The in a lot of cases, the closed circuit 
was an absolute disaster. Um, the Pittsburgh Civic Arena had the closed circuit uh, airing of WrestleMania, and the screen was wonky, so it didn't actually air. So the following week, I believe, I believe it was the following week weekend, they aired the entire show in its entirety on ABC, in the, like Sunday afternoon. I remember reading about that, and yeah, that's that's a a pretty big disaster because Pittsburgh is not only a big city with a big arena; it's it's a WWF city going back until the beginning of time. And and of course, too, I imagine the tickets were great for that because you had Bruno San Martino coming out for that, and his son. That's right. I forgot about that. Yeah, and Bruno Pittsburgh is a big time Bruno city. Anyway, Gary Renard, I hope you. you you know something about this, Thomas, because I really don't. Some athletes are talented enough to be professional in a second sport after retiring from their primary one. Uh, John Brody is a golfer. John Burkett as a bowler. Have there been any wrestlers who managed success in another story, uh, another sport, excuse me, during or post-wrestling career? During or post? Now, do you count Ken Patera in those World's Strongest Man contests? I don't see why not. Oh, there's one, I guess, because Ken Patera did do those back in the late 70s. Uh, thinking about it, well, the thing about it, too, is when these guys go into wrestling, and I'm not talking about the guys that are moonlighting as wrestlers you know, in the offseason. I don't want to count those guys because they're primarily a, a different sport athlete. But when you look at wrestlers, when they're ready to go on to a different sport, they're usually, you know, late 30s, early 40s, past their athletic peak. They're usually broken down physically. They're usually bulked up to the point where they, you know, they're, they're not able to, you know, run, you know, at an athletic, you know, top rate speed. So it's, it's a very difficult thing to kind of think about, you know, when you, like Ernie Ladd, he played football in the off season, but in wrestling, but that doesn't count. I, I, I think there's nobody. I, I can't think of anybody besides Ken Patera. I can't think of anyone either. Um, I, one thing I heard a long time ago is that if John Tatum, of all people, if he really worked at it, he could have been a professional golfer. He was that really? good. I, I know, weird out of there nowhere was. story. Oh, wait a minute. CM Punk, even though he bombed in MMA, he got a few, I think he got a couple of matches in. Well, they were trained. The big show was trained to be a boxer, but I don't believe he ever actually had a fight, did he? I don't think so, no. Because he walked away from the ring for, I would say, close to a year. Yeah, no, the only guy I can think of is CM Punk, and he, you know, no offense to CM Punk, but he, I, I don't even know much about MMA, but I know he completely bombed. And, you know, what are you going to do? He's 35. When he starts, he's, you know, he's just started learning, and no kidding, it's it's not easy to do that professionally yeah and especially with that you have at, at this rate of where mma is at the the folks he's you know going up against have been doing this probably since they were 15 years old it isn't something you pick up you know on a sunday afternoon and, and work your way out of like you know golf or something it's something exactly. you kind of just kind of learn as you go so yeah he, he was destined to fail from the beginning yeah i, I remember a friend of mine uh, his wife was all of a sudden going to take up softball. She'd never like picked up a glove in her life. And I'm just like, you know, she was in her mid thirties. I'm like, this is never, ever going to work. And of course it didn't, you know, if you're going to be good at something, you know, sports wise, you have to be doing it since you were a kid. I think the next question is aimed at me, David Rapp. What was your dubbing setup back in the tape 
trading days were all where were all of the tapes stored and where is all that stuff now? I had like 10 go videos, which is like a double uh, one one tape plays and the other tape records. I had like 10 of them set up on like an industrial bench in my office and my tapes were all on shelves in the same office. And I had a, a walk-in, uh, a walk-in closet where a lot of them lived and a lot of them lived on the wall. But anyway, did you, you ever do a lot of the tape trading Thomas or like, you know, any of that stuff? I never did because um, when I had, you know, once the, I got into the internet facet of wrestling, that was really like, I had a lot of brief dalliances of wrestling. I was the biggest wrestling fan in the world up until I was about uh, going into seventh grade, maybe. And that was 1995. And then I kind of petered out to where I was kind of out of it. And I got back in with the NWO, watched throughout the uh, Attitude Era. Sometime when the uh, sale of WCW... And, and we talked about this before with the Nitro episode from 2000. I thought I would watch Nitro all the way through the end. I clearly didn't, so I don't, or, or else I'd retain none of it. But right after the sale of WCWWE, I um, went out again, which coincided with me starting college. And at that point, I really was out of it again for about 01 till about 09. Now, I would pay attention a little bit to you know things on the internet or you hear this person's the new champion or this is headlining WrestleMania or this is the, who's going to win the rumble this year. But with tape trading, like, I didn't have that dire knowledge to watch things that I didn't know about. Like I did like when I was, you know, 11, 12 years old, I didn't know what the hell Memphis was. I knew Jerry Lawler came from there, but I didn't know the ins and outs of it. I didn't know much about the UWF except for, you know, what I read about me after magazines. So it's like, okay, I got this in front of me. I got WCW, I got WWF. I don't need anything else. So I never, once I got older, I got more free time as an adult with you know, my professional career. I got more interested, but by now, everything's kind of at your fingertips anyway. So I never really got into that tape trading uh, realm. It, it was fun for me, really fun for me at first, because I mean, I could go, you know, get a tape from someone that, you know, Mid-Atlantic Wrestling from 1982, which, you know, I dreamed about being able to watch and i'm using that as an example like the stuff i read about in the magazines has has now come to life on my television screen so that was great anyway clarence grigsby says did the checkout person usually inform you that that stuff is fake when you bought a wrestling magazine or was that just a, a kentucky and indiana thing in indiana they would usually add that they watched it back when dick the bruiser really hurt people thomas were you ever a magazine guy Actually, I was. I, uh, up until, you know, all throughout, you know, till about sixth grade, I would get uh, PWI every month. I would get WWF Magazine every month. And then sometimes those magazines would lag and I would end up at the drugstore and, you know, well, here's The Wrestler, I guess, or here's Inside Wrestling, or here's, uh, God forbid, Wrestling All-Stars is the only thing out there, or WCW Magazine. But, you know, once in a while, you'd have to, you know, bite the bullet and, and grab it. But, uh, to answer the question, I, I stopped really buying magazines when I was around 11. So I guess the clerk wasn't that big of an asshole to kind of make fun of me for <laughs> being a wrestling fan as a child. So I, I could say no in that regard to that question. 
I, I, I've mentioned this before. I mean, back when I lived in North Attleboro, Massachusetts, I would take my bike to Plainville, Massachusetts to buy my wrestling magazines. I would put them in a gym bag to get them home. I was not going to get caught buying those in my hometown. Then when I lived in Nashua, I would drive to Merrimack, New Hampshire to buy them. But I mean, they got everything about a week early. So there's there's my excuse. But only once did anyone ever say anything that at least I remember. Remember, um, I, I talked about it before. It was the time they had the picture of Kamala with Hulk Hogan's. Uh, Kamala had a spear and Hulk Hogan's head was on it. And the woman was like, oh, my God. And I was like 21. Like, you know what? I'm getting too old for this. But anyway, Justin Brown asks Hulk Hogan eliminating Sid Justice at Royal Rumble 92 is said to have elicited booze from the live crowd. I know people who went and they did. They said it did not. Uh, it was way worse live than it was on TV. How might the program have gone from there if the WWF actually turned Hulk Hogan? How might that have affected the rest of the 90s? Thomas, what do you think? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll play along with him by saying Hogan was not going to turn heel because he felt being a heel would have really killed the golden goose, which is his movie career. So I'll, I'll put that out there now, but for the sake of the question, I'll answer it. Uh, I, I think it would have been positive in the, in, in the immediate. The crowd at that point, I think, wanted to boo Hulk Hogan. The crowd wanted to cheer Sid Justice. You knew Ric Flair was in flux there. You knew that Hogan and Flair couldn't do anything, you know, really business-wise, it seemed. But I do think after Hogan and Sid had whatever they did, they wouldn't have had to bring back the Ultimate Warrior then. And they could have recycled a Hogan Savage program with Hogan as the heel. And I think at that point in time, that would have done great business in 1992. Now, not great business in terms of the Attitude Era, but I think it would have skyrocketed what they had in the summer of 92. Uh, I mean, I said this on the show before. There are some guys that you just don't turn. And Hulk Hogan is one of them. Even though they did turn him, they turned him in a different company where he was perceived as an outsider. So it made sense. But I mean, to me, you can't turn Hulk Hogan. If you're the WWF in 1992, it might've been a, a bump like short term, but you know, you would, you just would have, I mean, kids grew up worshiping Hulk Hogan and you just would have put a knife in their back. You know, I, I think it would have been the same thing as when the WWF turned Steve Austin in 2001. It's something they would, they would have had to quickly undo anyway, or the road warriors in 88, same thing. Yeah, uh, the, I, I don't see that because uh, to me, the, the Austin was still hot. The crowd no one. I think the crowd was Hogan had been a face at that point in time for eight years. Eight years is the un, eight years is the unstoppable baby face in the company. No one can can touch him. And yeah, kids were there, but but the older fans were absolutely sick of him. They were sick of him back in eighty eight, eighty nine. Yes, they were. I, I knew people around that time who were just like, I'm sick of Hulk Hogan. We need something else. And I'm just like, well, there isn't another, you know, once Hogan, once the Hogan era was over, I mean, there was no replacing the guy until Steve Austin came along. And I, I don't really see Austin as a replacement for Hogan. Like, you know, they, they tried so hard. Oh, let's bring in Lex Luger. Let's push Randy Savage. Just nothing worked. But anyway, um, I think, I think if the warrior had been big, and he had, you know, hit a home run with his face turn in 1990. 
they would have probably had no choice but to at least entertain the idea of turning Hogan in 91. Which, and not saying they would have, but if, if Warrior had kind of been right at where Hogan was in 90 or just a notch below, I think they would have entertained it then. But the Warrior ultimately struck out as champion. And that's not all his fault. The business was kind of on a slow decline from 88, 89 down. But once that happened and they had to go back to Hogan, I don't think it was ever going to happen after that. I mean, Warrior, I, I've always said they never gave him the right push. They put the title on him, and, but the first thing they made sure everyone knew is, like, Hulk Hogan is still the top guy despite not being champion. They never really got behind him the way they needed to, and that that's why he didn't get over the way he, he could have, potentially. Anyway, Evan Ryan Tolley asks, if Magnum TA had not had the vehicle accident where do you see his career long term when do you think he was started winding down can you see him in the wwf early 1990s or would he have been a wcw staple thomas your thoughts i think all options were on the table for magnum i i think in honesty he had reached his peak as a babyface where he was right then at some point in time, he would have gotten the U.S. title back from Nikita Koloff. He would have had probably an extended run with Ric Flair. But, you know, the guy holding the pencil is still the American dream, Dusty Rhodes. So that means at some point in time, Magnum would have turned on Dusty and there would have been a, a blood feud there. As usually happens when a face turns heel or when a heel turns face, once they get that initial pop, then they start to slide down the card. So Magnum would have been gone being a top run with Flair, top run with Dusty, and worked his way back down to the U.S. title picture with, you know, Lex Luger, Sting, you know, whomever at that point in time. Then it would have been a little bit lower, you know, fighting with the likes of, you know, Jimmy Garvin or Eddie Gilbert. And at a certain point in time, he would have seen his value diminished where he's either in tag teams or he's looking at the, the next possibility. At this point in time, Watts is long gone. He might have gotten offer from Vince, but I think he would, you know, probably either take it out of desperation or he may try to rebuild his brand image. Because at this point in time now, the Magnum TI Magnum PI gimmick is long dead. It's, you know, we're looking at the early 90s here. Does he go to Smoky Mountain? Does he go to Global? Does he go to Memphis? He's going to go somewhere else to rebuild for a couple of years. And then after that, let's say he goes to Smoky Mountain. He goes to Smoky Mountain, gets the same type of push as, you know, your Brad Armstrong's your Tracy Smothers, your, your Bobby Eaton's, your Dirty White Boys, and like all those guys with Cornette, he would have ended up in the WWF, and by 95, 96, 97, he would have essentially been a jobber to the stars. That's where I see his trajectory going in my eyes. My answer is not very different than yours. I thought I was the one guy who had this... Um had this idea of, you know, Magnum TA king of Smoky Mountain wrestling, but I think that's where he would have wound up. I think his career had peaked by the time he had the car accident. Um, I mean, you know, there's only so Magnum can only get in front of that camera and scream so many times at Nikita Koloff because before everyone gets turned off by it. And I think we were well on our way to that. And plus, you know, the girls who were in love with him, like they got tired of seeing him, you know, covered in blood. That's just the way it goes in wrestling. I think his trajectory would have been very similar to the rock and roll express. I think, you know, he, and I agree with you. He would have turned it on dusty at some point. 
he's one of these guys where, where you look at him and when you try to see somebody comparable to what his career would have been, you know, he would have been a rich man's Terry Taylor. Is Kyle got when you look at you know from from nuts to bolts and that he would have never been a top guy anywhere except for the 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 smaller promotions. He would have been by the 1990s more of an afterthought, a, an early match guy in the big two. ECW he would have he would have been a joke. I mean he they would have they would have treated him the same way they treated Tommy Rich. Tommy Rich kind of probably becomes the 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 best measuring stick for him really in my eyes past 1986 in my opinion you know it's funny as as i was talking or as you were talking earlier i was making comparisons to you know terry taylor having to be the red rooster in the wwf like i wouldn't be surprised if if magnum had he gotten hired by the WWF, if they had given him some sort of an embarrassing gimmick like the red rooster like dusty and polka dots etc yeah, there there have been something where they would have kept him and they'd have paid him well, but they they say these these gimmicks were to embarrass these guys. I think it was once they cut them loose and they went back to to Crockett or to Turner, then they had no they they lost their star value then because you could never take Terry Taylor seriously again after the Red Rooster. No, you couldn't. That absolutely ruined his career. I, 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 no one will ever talk me out of that. Anyway, Benji Fido asks, did WrestleMania three really put the nail in the coffin of the territories or did people just get tired of seeing wrestling in small boys and girls clubs after they had seen the WWF in the huge arenas on TV? Thomas, what do you think? I, I think if they would have had that, WrestleMania three in a sold out Madison Square Garden in front of eighteen thousand people, it would have been the final nail in the coffin. All the Pontiac Silverdome did was put a six feet of dirt and about three feet of concrete on top. The the fact of the matter is you had folks like Watts, you had other folks that they, you know, with Crockett really at that point in time too, they couldn't keep up. Watts was smart enough to know that he couldn't keep up. And it was a fool's errand to do so where Crockett thought he, you know, there's a lot of money to be made as the number two organization, but instead of embracing being number two, which Rick Flair has said, and Rick Flair has said falsely for, for 25 years that if Jim Crockett stayed in the Carolinas, he'd still be open. No, he wouldn't. He would not be open right now. If he operated out of Carolinas only since 1985. That's, that, that's not true. Vince would eventually came down and swallowed him whole. But the fact is he, he hurried his own death by trying to go out west, trying to go everywhere, and really letting Dusty and Ric Flair and those guys kind of hold the purse strings, so to speak. And by keeping up with Vince McMahon, he ultimately killed himself. I, I, I've i never understood the whole, well, if they, he had just stayed in the Carolinas, he would have been fine thing. At the end, they weren't drawing in the Carolinas either. That was the problem. They, you know, they, Dusty's booking had alienated the audience. But to answer Benji's question, I mean, WrestleMania three, I think by when WrestleMania three came around, there were three kind of major league wrestling promotions. There was the WWF, clearly the king, but you had the nwa and uwf as well awa and world class forget about them by this point and i think wrestlemania 3 really killed 
the UWF and uh, and the NWA. I mean, from what I understand, Bill Watts took a look at WrestleMania three. Uh, he was losing money. He said he was losing fifty thousand dollars a week, which I now believe. I used to not believe it, but I believe it now. And you know, he saw this thing that you know drew, however, tens of thousands of people you know whether it be 78,000 or 93,000 and that it grows 17 million on pay-per-view and he said that's it I'm done I fold the NWA it killed the NWA because I'm sure Jim Crockett looked at that and I'm like oh he said oh I'm gonna have that myself in November when uh Starcade comes around I put that on pay-per-view and Vince used the success of WrestleMania three and said, Hey, you know, we're having a show Thanksgiving night and you, you, the cable company have to pick between the two. You can't have both. Well, are you going to go with an unknown product? Or are you going to go with the guy who just put on WrestleMania three and Crockett was relying on that money to uh, pay some bills, quite frankly. And when it didn't come in, that was kind of the end of JCP. They, you know, cling to what they could for a while, but you know, that was it. That was the death blow. Do you think if Crockett just said when they, when the cable company said, we're going to air the survivor series instead, if Crockett just throws up his hands and says, fine, you win, but we're going to put Starcade live on TBS at the same time, do you think that buys him more time or not? Uh, yeah, that, and as a matter of fact, that's exactly what he should have done. He, you know, It would have been a blow to Vince McMahon. It would have been him making a statement that, you know, hey, if you mess with me, I'll mess with you. Crockett was never that guy, though. He was never Bill Watts. He was never, you know, wanted to be confrontational with Vince McMahon. You know, Watts would take on McMahon right on TV. He would start barking about, you know, how when uh, Don Morocco hit Steamboat with a chair, uh, Jim Ross, oh, that looks like that chair may have been altered with beforehand. Like, Crockett wouldn't do that. Like, Honky Tonk Man, my understanding, called Crockett and said, hey, you know, I'll come on WTBS with the Intercontinental Championship. And then Crockett supposedly wanted no part of it. So, I mean, I guess that's just how he, he rolled. But I once I found out that um, if I were running the NWA and I found out that, you know, four small cable companies were carrying Starcade, I absolutely would have put it on TBS for free. And guess what? You get ad, ad revenue from that. Absolutely. And it totally kills what he's paying, what McMahon was paying the cable companies. And at that point in time, too, it really sets up your fan base for the very first Clash of the Champions coming forward down the line. So in hindsight, does it ultimately even the battle? No, but I think it buys Crockett enough capital to where he can keep guys that are going to be leaving soon, with, you know, whether it's the powers of pain, whether it's you know, Dusty Rhodes, who Dusty Rhodes would have been going either way. But Barry Windham, Tully and Arn, the Rock and Roll Express, the Midnights. You know, you don't lose you may lose some of those guys, you don't lose all of those guys then if you if you make that move. Yeah, I, I agreed. And plus, you know what? It, it it sends a message to Vince, like, okay, you know, you mess with you mess with my pay per view, I'll mess with yours. And as we know, the cable companies kind of got in in the way and said, look, you know, you guys are costing us money, knock it off. But anyway, Ryan Damon, I like this question. What are the best and worst theme music created for a wrestler? Not, not soundtrack wrestling like ECW when no one cared about licensing. Thomas, what was your favorite uh, 
promotion created theme? Uh, for me, it, it has to be demolition by, but I think I don't, Rick Derringer wrote it apparently for the, uh, WWF pile driver album, but it was their theme song. It wasn't a commercial success. I, I had to go demolition. Okay. I'm actually going for something a little more modern. And by this, I mean, something that came out in the nineties. Uh, my number two is the DX theme. I thought that was fantastic. I thought that video went a long way getting that faction over, uh, triple H is my time is my absolute favorite. I mean, it, it was just perfect with the lighting, uh, the entrance, the whole, his whole entrance, etc. I thought it was a cool song. What do you think the worst was Thomas? Oh, there, there. You, you, a different day, you could probably get me for anything on this one. But the WCW album, well, the theme actually, Steinerized for the Steiner Brothers. Oh, God, that whole thing was so terrible. And really, you could go down the line, whether it's uh, the Barry Windham theme, which is an absolute ripoff of ZZ Top's LaGrange. Uh, you could go the Freebirds theme that they that Michael Hayes sang. It was absolutely terrible. Not 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 the 1984 Freebird song, or 83 Freebird song. The one back in '91 with WCW with Jimmy Jam Garvin. That one I'm talking about, folks. But I'm a Freebird, really and you're not. The line. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, the for me, the, that, that whole late early '90s WCW thing. I mean. Talk about creating the least cool thing imaginable, but I mean, what do you say? It's WCW. The worst theme, I think, in general, it wasn't for a wrestler. But remember, Thomas, do you remember like the the late '80s, early '90s Royal Rumble theme with that annoying xylophone thing going on with it? That was horrible. That yeah, gave me a yeah. headache. Where the uh where Vince would introduce the guys one by one. And, and you ever notice too, when he introduced the guys one by one, like Bushwhacker Luke, the earthquake, the warlord, Bushwhacker Butch. Now why couldn't they be together? <laughs> I think Vince was trying to emphasize the fact that there are no uh, alliances or tag teams. They are in the Royal Rumble as a singles wrestler. And maybe Bushwhacker Luke was going to win and get the championship match at WrestleMania or something. I don't know. The worst for a wrestler, I thought, was Harley Race slash Jerry Lawler, the, the, the King music. Do you remember that? That was the worst. Oh. Yeah, well, even up until uh, Lawler had his heart attack, when he would come out for those one-off matches on Raw, they'd play that in, like, 2010. Yeah. So so four decades of awfulness for that, that theme. Dan Potts asks, if Eddie Gilbert does not pass away, how does the rest of his career play out? An ECW return or maybe a, a return to Memphis? Thomas, what do you think? Uh, he had napalmed every bridge, really, in, in in American wrestling at that point in time. He would have stayed in Puerto Rico for a while, came back home. He, he, kind of, he wanted out of the wrestling business. It seemed like he had ran for public office in Tennessee and, and didn't win. But really, with that being all he knows, he, he has to come back there. I, I, I tend to think 
looking at the companies that are around at that time, 94, 95, maybe Jim Cornette brings him in in the Smoky Mountains. And with that, after Smoky Mountain is done and wraps up, as a lot of guys were able to get back into the WWF, albeit briefly, I think he becomes a road agent of the WWF. I mean, you're you, maybe into a, a creative position. I mean, you, you, you said he napalmed every bridge reading right from my notes. Eddie had burned every bridge, including Memphis. Eddie got on live TV on, on, on WMC and just started shooting on the Jarrett and Jeff Jarrett. And, you know, his dad's the promoter or whatever. And he was not from my, my understanding. He was not coming back to Memphis. I mean, that might have changed, but they were really pissed at him. And that wasn't the first problem they had with Eddie Gilbert. I mean, I remember talking to Brian Hildebrand and, you know, Eddie, I mean, Eddie was conspicuous by his absence in the beginning with Smoky Mountain Wrestling. And I once asked Brian Hildebrand, like, you know, it's just he and I. I'm like, hey, how come Eddie Gilbert's not here? And Brian just kind of laughs and he says, well, Eddie and Jimmy are a little bit too much alike. And, but then Brian says something along the lines of, but I think he would be good for the promotion. And every now and then I asked Jimmy about it. Well, Eddie got his chance in Smoky Mountain Wrestling, as we all know. Uh, what you might not know is he showed up on TV and he did not look good. He looked even smaller than usual and his hair was falling out. And he just didn't seem very enthusiastic about what he was doing. Um, he was rather subdued. And, you know, before before I even got the tape of Eddie Gilbert and Smoky Mountain Wrestling, I had learned that he had left to go to Puerto Rico. And my, my understanding is that Brian Hildebrand really went to bat for Eddie Gilbert. Eddie wanted to get in. Uh, Jim Cornette finally decided, okay, I'll I'll give the guy a chance. I'll put him in a tag team with Glenn Jacobs as Unibom. And, of course, Eddie blew it. And when Al Snow came in, uh, he was way better than Eddie Gilbert. And, and please don't anyone get me wrong. I was a big fan of Eddie Gilbert uh, in the 80s and the early 90s. But it was like, you know, I don't know how to put it. It was almost like he'd lost all enthusiasm for wrestling. He might've gotten back in ECW because they, they were always desperate. I mean, they were desperate enough to hire Sid. They were desperate enough to bring dusty roads in, but you know, may, I think Eddie Gilbert, his best case scenario would have been one of those guys who Eric Bischoff hired just so no one else could hire him. And Eddie gets $3,000 a week to stay at home, like a lot like a lot of guys did, like Lanny Poffo did, like Bobby Eaton did, et cetera. Yeah, I, I do think, though, I, I don't know if Paul, I think Paulie, it seemed to me Paulie was just the one, nothing to do with Eddie Gilbert anymore. And by the time Eddie would have came back into the States, it wouldn't have been 1993 anymore where Paulie just needed somebody there to come in. They were starting to hit their stride. And he could have the, the the ability to say, you know, screw you, Eddie. I don't need you anymore. You burn me once, you know, shame on, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. I, I can't help but think his in-ring days in a major promotion were over. I, I would have, you know, I, I would have thought maybe had Cornette brought him back, it would have been either in a backstage role or as a, a manager, a mouthpiece for somebody. A mouthpiece for a guy like the Unibom at the time would have been great. But you already had Al Snow there, and Al Snow was, you know, 
at that point in time, it's not blasphemy to say Austin was better than Eddie Gilbert. No, not at all. So I do think he becomes a, a more of a backstage person. And that's why I think once Smoky Mountain closes down, you know as well as I do that like guys like Buddy Landell, guys like Tony Anthony, uh, Tracy Smothers, I'm forgetting a few. Obviously, the Heavenly Bodies all ended up in uh, WWF. I, I think Eddie probably gets back in there as a back, as a road agent, and, and that's kind of where he where he finishes out. Now, does he burn that bridge eventually and end up in WCW? 50-50 probably, but I, I do think his in-ring career was, was, was done by the time he came back. You, you know what? I mean, he, he had gone through a lot of injuries as, as well. So, you know, he was a smaller guy in a bigger guy's business. I'm not sure if he would have been a road agent for the WWF. I mean, you never know. Barry Windham. Um, it seemed like he burned his bridge with the WWF, but got back. And as far as I know, to this day, is still a road agent. So, so you never know. But I mean, let's just put it this way. By the time Eddie had passed, or let's let's say by the time he left Smoky Mountain Wrestling, there were just too many Eddie Gilbert stories out there. I mean, it, it can't always be someone else's fault. And and Al Snow was way better than Eddie Gilbert by 1994. I mean, that's not blasphemy at all. all I, right. I can't help but think that there, there, there's no other option for him. Yeah, I, I, I don't know what he would have done. I mean, like I said, maybe his best bet would be... To get one of those, you know, his job is to walk to the mailbox <laughs> jobs that Eric Bischoff was giving out. All right. Anthony Osiello asks, if given the opportunity, what wrestlers from the 70s could have crossed over to Hollywood for either comedy or action films? I, Thomas, I had a tough time coming up with anyone, but I came up with one person. What do you got? The one guy I thought of is when you look at it, it doesn't have to be Dustin Hoffman. It doesn't have to be Paul Newman or Steve McQueen. But, you know, there was a lot of money made in those movies like Billy Jack and Walking Tall. Those type where, where it's the rugged loner comes into town and cleans house. That, that sounds like Bill Watts to me. That was my guy. <laughs> that was my guy, Bill Watts. I, I mean, I'm sure it's the power of suggestion. Uh, Jim Cornette referring to him as Buford T. Poster or whatever the guy's name was. But yeah, I could totally see Bill Watts doing that. I guess you know, if you go forward and, and try to think of anybody else in that regard, like who else could possibly come into that? Like the thing about the 1970s were as well, like a lot of your bigger stars were, were, were kind of wooden in terms of their personality. It wasn't like anywhere like it was in, in the, in the expansion era, like, you know, Jack Briscoe wasn't going to do a romantic comedy or, or Terry and even Terry <laughs> Funk wasn't where he was in, in, in the mid 1980s. So when you look at it, I mean, Ric Flair wasn't where he was at in the seventies, obviously dusty Rhodes. I mean, you couldn't understand what he's saying in a movie that's have subtitles. Um, <laughs> and, it, and then you look at the when, when you look at the wrestler the movie the wrestler have you watched the wrestler recently john not recently i've i probably saw it last like 30 years ago well you watch it I, I, and, and you look at Vern, and you think Vern gagne carrying a movie you're like oh, is, what the hell is this gonna be and when you watch you're like well you know to his credit i don't think anybody else could have done much better I thought I thought Vern was really good in that. 
Yeah, that's what I mean. Like, I mean, he wasn't terrible, but at the same time, he wasn't going to get a you know a, a TV show out of it or a, or a movie deal. But then again, he was going to be leaps and bounds better than Bruno San Martino or Bob Backlund or or anyone else, Nick Bockwinkle or Billy Robinson or whomever. So that that tells you he was the the best you could put, even though he the movie was behind him obviously, and he was fronting with his guys, his training camp, everything else. He was really the best option for Hollywood for that kind of film. And that kind of shows you what a place, you know, where the wrestling business was in terms of being a star maker in the 1970s. And then compared to 10 years later, where you could name probably 20 guys that could be, you know, prominent movie, prominent movie roles, really. Yeah, and we got to see one, Roddy Piper in They Live, even though Piper just went out there and was Roddy Piper, and while wow, surprised, he was only good for really one movie. When you talk about The Wrestler, though, I mean, it's been a while since I've seen it, but Vern Gagne, like, comes across as a really smarmy heel as opposed to, you know, the the, the handsome and humble baby face that he was his entire career. And I see him in that movie, I'm like, man— you know, perhaps Vern missed his calling as, you know, one of the top heels in the sport. Uh, I mean, he could have been a heel, but really then as a heel, you had to kind of be the, the, the big brooding guy, your, your Fritz Von Erich. Fritz Von Erich kind of a prototype for a heel for that era. You know, the, the big thick body and the, the, the strength of the, the height. Vern, Vern looked like none of those things. Vern would have been a, you know, a chicken shit heel and had to have a manager, but that's more of the era beyond the 1970s. Uh, speaking of Roddy Piper, there was a pilot in the late 1980s. It was like a cop show with uh, Jesse the Body Venture and Roddy Piper. Have you seen that? Yeah, I've seen it on YouTube. Okay, I haven't seen it in close, probably close to 20 or 25 years. I remember it being splendidly awful. It it was one of those shows that it was bad, but it was almost it was almost bad in a good way sort of thing. I mean, I, I was cracking up the whole time. It wasn't NYPD Blue, obviously, in terms of, you know, groundbreaking police dramas. Or, or law and order, but at the same time, like I could see people watching that just being enter- entertained for the wrong reasons. That that describes me watching it. I was entertained for the wrong reasons, but I can also see someone who was not a Roddy Piper fan like I was, or a Jesse Ventura fan like I was, um, you know, just being like, "What is this garbage?" And, now, by the way, here, controversial, controversial opinion, Jesse Ventura's body shop was way better than Piper's Pit, in my opinion. Well, when Piper lost some of his steam post-WrestleMania with the way, if you look at the very first you know, 20 or 30 Piper's Pits compared to the last 30 before he left after WrestleMania 2, there's a big difference. The, 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 when he when he was kind of doing like the body shop at the very beginning, he was kind of just pissing off the baby faces and doing things like that. Towards the end, the Piper's pits were only done to promote his own storylines, and that's kind of where the Piper's pits kind of lost their steam. And really, the the, the last Piper's pits, aside from the Hogan Andre situation, really kind of just went it with the the Piper Adonis feud, 
which is why at that point in time, you know, shows like the snake pit kind of jumped over it. Shows like uh, the body shop, like you were saying, had jumped over them. And, and once they decided that really, you know, I don't want to say get lazy with the booking and just kind of focus on Piper on these shows, that's where it, it lost its fastball. I agree. I remember maybe the first six months of Piper's pit, they were all either they ranged from good to really good. A couple of them were excellent. But I remember like by the end of 1984, I'm like, you know, this is garbage, man. He's he's run out of ideas. I, I don't know what to say, but I always thought just the, the uh, Ventura segment, uh, the body shop, it, it was good. It, it, everyone who went on there was a little bit more over when that segment was, was done. But anyway, um, John Thill, and I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly, what was worse for the wrestling business, the Attitude Era or the Ruthless Aggression Era? What do you think, Thomas? Um, unpopular opinion, but I will say the Attitude Era. And I will say the Attitude Era because with the competition versus WCW, every angle, every title match, everything was hot shot booking. There was the time to build a storyline. That, that, the thing about it is the, the one storyline that played itself out, two of them actually, was Austin and Vince McMahon, which played itself out again and again and again and again, and, and Kane and The Undertaker. Everything else was resolved in, in four weeks, and then they, they would go to two separate places and then come back two months later and start all over again. There was never the continuity. There was, there was a lot of things they, they had to just kind of, you know, get it and go, get it and go, get it and go. And then by the time you get to ruthless aggression, the crowd has been so fixated on, on, and been so conditioned to what's happened in the Attitude Era. To do a complete 180, you'd lose them. You, you'd kill their intention span. So then what do you do then? Do you have to just keep feeding it and feeding it and feeding it? And it's got to be a slow, long process to, to get them back to that pre-attitude era way. But they've never actually, they've tried a few times to build long storylines, but eventually they hit the panic button because of ratings and they, and they pull the ripcord again. So we've never really gotten out of the attitude. Now we've gotten out of it in terms of content and violence, but in terms of the way storylines go, We've never really gotten out of the attitude era, John, in my opinion. Uh, I agree with you. Um, I don't think either one really was bad for business. I mean, during the attitude era, you know, if you were at the mall or wherever, you know, if you looked around, you would see someone wearing, wearing a wrestling shirt. I can't remember the last time I saw someone wearing a wrestling shirt, uh, barring the time six uh, six years ago when I went to the Providence Civic Center and saw WWE. Um I mean, you know, it was a very popular product. The uh, WWF at one point did a, I believe, a 9.1 rating on on our episode of Raw, where uh, Nitro was was preempted by NBA basketball. I mean, it was a really successful era in wrestling, and you know, the fans voted with their wallets. And then in 2001, of course, WWF got stupid. They focused. Uh, just on making the McMahon celebrities and what a surprise people stopped watching. Do you believe they always, you know, they, they asked Bruce Pritchard about, you know, the, the botched invasion angle. And Bruce had said, 
that the reason why they pulled the plug on it so quick was one was the time Warner stuff with the contracts with the very big stars, which we, we've talked about before you buy them out or you, or you give them three quarters of what they're getting to come back in or whatever it is and bring in your Rick flares, your hall Nash your Goldberg sting, whatever. But the other thing he said was that the WWF audience didn't know the WCW guys because each side only watched their own show and didn't flip back and forth. And I think that's the biggest crock of bullshit that Bruce Pritchard, who's one of the biggest BS artists amongst them all, has ever said. Because anybody that I knew that was a wrestling fan always, at the very minimum, would casually flip back and forth during a commercial. No one stayed true to, to Raw or to Nitro throughout the entire two hours. So I don't know if that's the case. Do you believe that, John? I believe that he said it. <laughs> Bruce <laughs> goes back to an era. I, I, I you know what? I'm, I'm not even saying this like in a nasty way, but Bruce goes back to an era where the promoters and the wrestlers treated their audience with contempt. And that's all I can say. I think Bruce still treats his listeners. He's not going to come right out and say it. But I, I really believe in my heart he is contemptuous towards his listeners because, I, I, there, I mean, there's no other way to explain some of the stuff that comes out of his mouth. Yeah, I think he looked at it as, I mean, you hate to use the word mark, but I think that's what he thinks of his, his viewing, listening audience, rather. So, yeah, it is no. what it is. Marks to be exploited. And again, I, I get it. That's kind of, you know, he grew up uh, in, you know, as part of the office. Uh, in Houston, which is kind of crazy if you think about it, because Paul Bosch was one of the few promoters who didn't te- treat his audience with contempt. But like I said, he's he was certainly around enough guys who who did. That's my theory. I've never does Bruce has like a podcast, right? Yeah, he has a podcast um, on I don't know what network it's on, but um, Conrad Thompson has uh, around five or six. Uh, Okay. Host or AEW guys and Bruce Pritchard. Bruce Pritchard, I think, is the flagship of that show. So, all right. I I, I like Conrad, so I'm not going to say anything bad about you know he's he's a nice guy, but I mean Bruce, I I just don't. I mean I I have people saying you know like you today. Oh, Bruce Pritchard said this, and it's like yeah, who cares? Like you know, <laughs> whatever. You know, it's like uh, put something on a roulette wheel. It doesn't even matter. Uh, anyway. Uh, uh, let me see. Jamie Hama. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. The Jake Roberts Macho Man feud never had a blow off. Would the blow off match have happened at Mania 8 if they didn't change course with the Hogan Flair match? Or would we have gotten it sooner had the Warrior fo- didn't get fired, forcing the Undertaker to turn face? Um, Thomas, what do you think? I don't I, I've never. This is the first time I've ever seen really a connection to Warrior getting fired and Undertaker turning babyface, but maybe that's true. Well, Warrior got fired the same night that the Jake the Snake Macho Man feud began, SummerSlam 91. That's where, you know, Macho Man's wedding reception had the, the Cobra in the box or whatever, and then Warrior was gone the same day. So those, those paths don't intersect. They, they're on opposite directions. Now, with that, too, the Macho Man did get a pinfall win over Jake, I believe, at that impromptu pay-per-view Tuesday in Texas, which 
didn't really end the feud, but it got him back in the ring. And they did have the blow-off match at the um, Saturday night's main event. Now, keep in mind, this is Warriors long gone out of the picture here. So what are you going to do with Undertaker? You already have, you know, either Hogan Flair or Hogan Stitt at this point in time because you're, you're trying to figure out what you're going to do back in the fall of 91. Undertaker has to wrestle somebody. He's already had the throwaway match at WrestleMania 87 to get himself over. Now he's fully, fully over. You have to give him a top line or close to top line face or heel. The Warriors gone. Who else are you going to put in that spot? Are you going to give him Sid Justice and have one of those guys take the pin? Both of them are white hot at the time. You don't want to do that. So I think where it's going to go here, I mean, once they, once they got into the fall and knew that Hogan and Flair wasn't going to work, they had to take a right turn. And Savage coming back already, they can go Savage Flair, and then it's easy to feed Jake because the crowd was starting to get into The Undertaker. Which is one of those things, too, when we get back to Hogan and turning him heel, the crowd was, when, the, when Undertaker pinned Hogan, there were cheers in the Survivor Series. And Hogan being the politician that he is, I can't help but think he may have lobbied to turn Undertaker face in order to, in case down the line they did Taker Hogan again, it wouldn't be 50-50. Now Hogan and Taker are on the same side. But Hogan was leaving anyway, so that could be just much ado about nothing. But I, I, I do think, long story short, that they really were kind of backed into a corner with The Undertaker, and they had to feed into somebody. Jake was getting ready to leave, so he made the most sense. I think I agree with everything you just said. Um, the only, the, the only, uh, the only thing was that Hogan. When he left after WrestleMania, they thought he would be back for the buildup of SummerSlam uh, 92, and that just didn't happen. Um, you also have to remember that, that the WWF was doing a lot of hot shotting in uh, late 1991, mid-1991, early 1992. I think they had, you know a grand plan where they're going to have Hogan versus Sid at WrestleMania, but the rest of it was kind of put together, you know, as we went along, I mean, you know, the WWF was at one point well-known for, okay, you know, coming out of WrestleMania four, they knew what they were going, going to be doing at WrestleMania five. It wasn't like that anymore, or at least it wasn't like that as much. Like I said, their their crowds were down, their pay-per-view numbers were down, and they were doing a, a lot of stuff by the seat, of the seat of their pants. Yeah, I think at that point in time, because that well, they did hit home runs. They they, they were they were good. Um, WrestleMania is you know three WrestleMania five, obviously you know business wise, but at that point in time, they could put anything down. And they were fortunate with the booking. It was good booking, but it, it worked. Everything worked. And, and, and the crowd would have eaten it up had it not worked. But I do wonder if there was any kind of plan for Ric Flair after the Hogan Flair series was disappointing, if there was any kind of plan B. Because like, I, I look at it, and, and common sense tells me that once they fired the Warrior, there was no one else for Ric Flair to fight at that point in time. They'll, they're, they're, I saw a really a really good Bret Hart versus Ric Flair match in Boston. Um, I have seen Flair against The Undertaker. I have seen him against The Ultimate Warrior, but none of those were really programs. It was you know, the only real program he had was Hulk Hogan at the beginning, and that was pretty much it. 
Right, and, and that's what that's what I mean. Like Bret Hart wasn't in a position at that time to be in a double main event at WrestleMania by, by April of '92. Uh, the Undertaker, yeah, sure you could have done it, but I, I don't think he was in that position yet either to, to really headline a WrestleMania, especially with Hulk Hogan and their bill. I guess you could do Roddy Piper, but you don't want to really have a DQ finish for the uh, world title either. Cause Piper did Piper did the favorites for Brett for a lot of reasons. I guess back in, you know, Piper's younger days, he respected Brett's father. And now Piper is a big fan, a close personal friend of Ric Flair. But would Piper take a pinfall as a challenger? I don't think he would have. No Piper and Piper was famous for not doing jobs. And I, I got to see him do a job at the Boston Garden for Hulk Hogan. And I think that was the only WWF job he did from the time he got there until the Bret Hart job, which, you know, again, he did for uh, kind of as a favor to Stu and Bret uh, while we're at it. But anyway, Jesus Salas he did Rodriguez. He one job, actually. Oh, uh, two. One Piper job that he did. Um, I believe he was wrestling Adrian Adonis at the Meadowlands. I could be wrong about Adonis, but I know the, the, the back part is Andre the Giant was the guest referee. And when Adonis went for the pin, Andre sat on Adonis's back and counted one, two, three. I remember that. I want to say that was January 87. At, I think it was up in Uniondale. And yeah, that's right. I forgot about that one. But oh, good, good call. Thomas. Anyway, uh, let me see. Jesus asked, which match or wrestler hooked you into pro wrestling? Thomas, do you have an answer for this? I don't think there was one match or really one wrestler. I mean, because I, I, wrestling as, as a kid, it was just always, always my thing. So, you know, I'll be lazy and say the WWF and Hulk Hogan, but really, I, I think it was just the entire the entire genre in and of itself. Uh, you know what? It, and that's actually, that, that's what kept me hooked into wrestling. But I remember it was a, I've told the story on the show before. It's embarrassing. I was 10 years old. I was a very casual wrestling fan. If I was going through the channels on channel, uh, when I was on Saturday morning and wrestling was on, oh, good wrestling. And I liked it. And my favorite was a guy named Billy White Wolf, right? And, you know, occasionally, probably like five or six times, an adult was, oh, you like wrestling? Who's your favorite wrestler? And I would say Billy White Wolf. And they'd look at me and they'd say, you mean Chief J. Strongbow? And I think to myself, no stupid adult. I just said Billy White Wolf. I, I, I've never seen Chief J. Strong, Strongbow before. And, and one afternoon, uh, Billy White Wolf is teamed up with Jose Gonzalez against Crusher Blackwell and I think Rocky Tamayo. And the heels are do uh, have thrown Gonzalez out of the ring and they're doubling up on Billy White Wolf. And this guy I never saw seen before, Chief J. Strongbow, comes to the ring. The crowd goes wild because Strongbow's been gone for about a year. And I thought this guy was nuts. And he got me hooked. 11 o'clock every Saturday was appointment television for me. From that move, moment forward, and again, forgive me, I was 10 years old. Anyway, Matthew Grade asks, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. I know I, I've said that before. What was the weekly routine of a territory, 70s and 80s, as far as how many shows a week they would run? Thomas, do you have an answer? I, as many shows as the boys could get to, really, depending upon the the market and depending upon the fan base and depending upon uh, 
the area in which you uh, were promoting out of. You look at the 1970s, it was, you know, some places would do double shots on Sundays, some places wouldn't, and some double shots on Saturdays. Some folks would take Mondays off. Uh, primarily speaking, the only thing that you could really have as a rule of thumb was with the WWF, they would take the week of Christmas off, I believe. It was like maybe 10 days leading up to the end of the year at certain times. And then um, once the expansion era hit, they would take about a 10 to 14 day break following WrestleMania and just have all their TV tapings in the can ready to go and onto the uh, programs and leading up into May. Later on, those 14 day breaks turned into European tours. So the boys never really got any time off to the chagrin of everybody else to make the almighty dollar. But, but really the answer is as many shows as they could get the boys to as many shows fans would fill the seats up to in my eyes. Yeah, I mean, every territory was different. The WWF was running one or two night shows a night, uh, sometimes three or four shows a day on a Saturday or a Sunday. And then after expansion, they were running three times a night and double shots every single Saturday. And yeah, surprise, you've got guys collapsing at the airport. Mid-Atlantic tended to run like twice a night in the 70s. Uh, Georgia looked like they ran once or twice a night and not to pick on Ole Anderson, but Ole would talk about, Oh, we ran three shows a night in Georgia. Well, I guess it's possible that none of the websites have it are, and I know there's missing information there, but I have yet to see a show in Georgia, a non weekend show where they were running three towns a night. I have not seen it, but anyway, and yeah, I guess the answer is it depends on the territory, but the guys were kept busy. That's for sure. And even more to that point, WWF, once they got into the, once they hit the stratosphere about 86, 87, they would start doing uh, fundraisers where basically what they would do is like a local high school, if they wanted to raise money for a new gym or whatever, they would pay the WWF, you know, 4,000 bucks. And then they would send, you know, a half dozen guys down there. And then the, the school could keep all the, all the ticket sales, and everything else. They wouldn't have to worry about paying the boys. So you would see times, and some of these aren't posted or not, but you see, you know, posters and placards and things like that, where they were easily running four or five individual shows a night, not double shots, four or five separate shows. Now, granted, those those spot shows that were in high school typically were within three or four hours of New York, obviously, you know, somewhere in like New York, Pennsylvania, Connecticut, those New Jersey, those types of places. But they they ran those to the ground back in the late 80s. I went to a show in Litchfield, New Hampshire. I want to say, uh, like night, uh, like spring, late winter, nineteen eighty-two, and it was a show run by the police. The police actually bought the Litchfield Police Department. Actually bought the, um, you know, bought, bought a show. And you know, I'm I'm talking. I went to the show. I didn't, you know, bought a ticket at the do- at the uh, door. And the guy next to me who's sitting there watching wrestling is like, "Yeah, the cops knock on your door and say, hey, you want to buy wrestling tickets? How are you going to say no?'" <laughs> All right, let me see. Aaron Tallis asks an interesting question: What if Vince McMahon never finds out who? His father is. What do you think the state of the WWF and the state of rest, the wrestling business as a whole would become? It's a big question. Okay, so Vince is totally out of the picture. So assuming that um, 
when Vince Senior dies in '84 or is dying at that time, I'm assuming at that point he diverts his interest of the company back to you know probably Gorilla Monsoon at that point in time. I mean they they've they've kind of hit their stride uh, financially throughout the late '70s and early '80s. Ole's already started his expansion. I think once Ole started and once wrestling became syndicated, then I think Gorilla's probably off to the races, Crockett's off to the races. And, and I think what you have, it, it's like a game of risk then, John, where each of these companies will make a little run nationally, get their feet wet, have a setback, and go back to their territory. Ole will do it, have some, have some early success, struggle, go back to Georgia. Monsoon goes out west, has some success, struggles, goes back. St. Vern, same thing. Uh, Fritz von Erich, Watt, same thing. I don't think anybody had the, had the current business plan before Vince McMahon to be successful nationally for a prolonged period of time. Syndication, television would have helped, but I don't think they had the production values. I don't think they had the real wherewithal to out, outright raid talent like Vince did. I think if anybody would have, it was Bill Watts, but I, or maybe Gorilla Monsoon. I won't, I won't put it past Gorilla, but I don't think they would have done it to the extent of Vince. So I do think wrestling, you know, really even to this day, is just an ebb and flow of folks going in and out of territories, you know, other territories. But wrestling, I would say, if Vince McMahon did not know his father, there would be anywhere from four to six territories that are somewhere around the same realm of prominence nationally. Uh, the only part I disagree with with what you said, I agree with everything wholeheartedly, except the last part. I think the territories were doomed by, by technology, um, and I think – Either one promotion was going to take over nationally, like it eventually happened, or wrestling would have gone the way of roller derby. Um, I actually think if I had to guess, okay, Vince McMahon is never gets into the wrestling bi- business. Vince McMahon Jr. Uh, if anyone was going to be able to take over nationally, it would have been Bill Watts. He would have gone for it, um, and it would have happened a lot later, like by 1987. Definitely by the end of 1987, the wrestling war was pre- the 80s wrestling war was pretty much over. I think it would have gone long. I want to say a lot longer than that, but at least a few years longer than that. But yeah, it might have gone the way of roller derby. Just you know, okay, it gets it it gets smaller and smaller until it's just a niche product. I, I could see it go either way. To be quite honest with you, I, I can't understand how um, anybody wouldn't because. Sports, like business, like anything else in life, is, is, is a copycat profession. So once Ole, because Ole was you know, essentially the first one to really go into Pennsylvania and go into Ohio and uh, work his way north and work his way east and west, other companies would have panicked and made the same move. Who would have been next? Would it have been Vern? Would, have been, would Monsoon have gone south? I mean, there, there's a lot of ways this could go. And, and honestly, it's one of those things, too, where it, obviously the, the, the common answer is what, but what if what gets caught in a firefight between Fritz coming east, Monsoon coming south, Ole going west, and it's all just, you know, it leaves, it leaves 
uh, mid-south in a, in, a, in a cloud of dust. I mean, that could conceivably happen. I mean, so we're just kind of you know, speculating here, but it could be one of anything, really. I do think that, that Fritz would have stayed put. I think Vern was too far spread out as it was, even, even with what he had. I don't think he would have been able to market Hulk Hogan successfully, even if Hogan had stayed. Even though Vince didn't exist, Hogan would have probably gone elsewhere immediately once, you know, Watts went national or, or Gorilla or whomever. But I, I, I have to get what you said. I, don't, I, I truly don't think that there would be anything remotely resembling the WWE right now in this day and age. I don't either. The the reason I say I think Bill Watts had the best chance of being successful is because I saw what he did. I saw him raid world-class championship wrestling's roster, and he tried to move into the state of Texas and actually did so with some success. But he was the only one that's like, okay, I'm going after, you know, the only one outside of Vince McMahon who kind of said, okay, I'm going after you. Like, like you said, like it was like playing risk, you know, uh, but you're right. I mean, Watts did get it on all sides. I mean, at one point you had four companies running Dallas, uh, the NWA world class mid South and the NWA. And it's like, you know, they're only, only so many wrestling tickets are, go- are going to sell. But, but keep in mind though, once we, you know, Watts finally gets indication. You already have, and this is before Vince really came onto the forefront. You already have Crockett on syndication on WTBS. You already have Ole on WTBS. You already have Fritz everywhere. You have the AWA on ESPN. You have a lot. You, he's behind the eight ball already. So it's it, it, to me, it's a lot more conceivable that Watts becomes a statistic than he becomes the the preeminent uh, wrestling owner. You're right. He did get behind on not on syndication, but he was not on on national cable. And I think that would have made a big difference. It is a a different wrestling history book if Watts got that WTBS spot in 1985 instead of Crockett. Uh, Jimmy Andrews asks, is Vince WWE's biggest asset whilst also being their biggest detriment? Thomas, what do you think? Uh, biggest asset certainly because they would be nowhere as we just mentioned they'd be nowhere near where they are at today without him biggest detriment i i get why that is and if you're going to say he's the biggest detriment to me the only answer you could give is the fact that once they went public he was no longer able to run the show the way he exactly the way he wanted to and i, I think Knowing how how Vince Vince's mind is creatively, I can't help but think that Vince wants a a PG product. I think that's something that's demanded from him from the shareholders, from the from the CFOs, and 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 you know Nick Khan and and all those other entities. So I, biggest detriment, you could say yes, but it's only because of the the shareholders in my eyes. 
Yeah, I mean, long term, he's by far been their biggest asset. Uh, right now, 2022, I don't even know. You know, I, I I can't really tell you like what his role is. Um, I do know, and I've heard this from multiple sources, that the WWE is a really unhappy place in in terms of their talent. Like the morale there is at an all time low. And if I were WWE, I would bring in like you know some sort of sports psychologist or whatever and get that fixed. I mean, I, I've just heard from too many people that no one's happy. Well, you see it now. They're, they're really just kind of locking in guys so they can just not go to AEW and they have no plan for them because the WWE's mindset is, oh, we're going to give you more money than you've ever seen in your life, so you shouldn't care what we do with you creatively. And not giving those guys any kind of creative standalone uh, ideas. It's just, here's what we got. You're going to do it. We pay you every two weeks for it. Suck it up and do it. Yeah, it's funny. The WWE is just so corporate. And they're they're trying to take away people's real names. And AEW, I don't know if it's true or not. But they sure make it look like they're all one big happy family having a party out there. Uh, Let me see. AJ Montgomery. I've heard you mention several times about a certain world title reign lasting too long or maybe too short. Which reign do you think was just right? And can it be from any of the promotions? Just want to hear your thoughts. Thomas, what title reign do you think was just right in terms of length? I look at the perfect reign as being probably the Randy Savage first world title run from WrestleMania 4 to WrestleMania 5. I think it had done, you know, all it could do. I, a lot of people, myself included, would have rather had Randy Savage beat Hogan, but there's no logical move after that because he's going to keep fighting Hogan again and again until Hogan finally puts him over because there's no one else really there at the time. So I would, and, and to me, anything beyond one year as well, you run the risk of getting stale. And we, Hogan was selling money, you know, help, selling to get hand over fist, but at the same time, he was getting stale. And even by 1989 standards, he, he was stale. He was the same Hulk Hogan he was in 1986 and 1985. So you had Randy Savage, and you had a face he, Savage, and then you had a heel Savage. The heel Savage, it, it got heat, but I, I don't know if it got the right heat, though, because he didn't really fight guys that were super over baby faces in that, in, you know, that 89 run, whether it was Dusty Rhodes, you know, Hacksaw Jim Duggan. Yeah, they were popular. They were over, but they weren't at Savage's level of, of being a heel. So I think they kind of knew what was in the water if Savage were to go over Hogan with that. So I'll say Randy Savage, 88 to 89. That that's a good one, and I agree with you as far as you know Hulk Hogan goes. Like in '89, he was starting to get stale, um, and maybe they I, I I they were working on someone getting someone to step into those shoes, and it's like every time they were in that position, they got in their own way. But we talked about that already. I I have two. Number one, Bruno's San Martino's second WWF title reign, uh, '74 through the end of uh, beginning of 1977. It felt like it was it was 
time, like Bruno wasn't stale yet, but he was getting there. He was looking older. He had been champion for a long time, including his first title reign. So that one felt like the timing was good. And plus, you know, he was starting to go through the same challengers over and over again. The second one might surprise people who know me. And that that one is Bob Backlund. Bob Backlund was champion for almost six years, and that's a long time. And as a fan, I was tired of Bob Backlund being champion by the end of 1981. But at the same time, they really didn't have anyone until Hulk Hogan ready to step in and become the new WWF champion. And let's face it, why are you fixing what's not broken? You know, the WWF was a machine under Bob Backlund. In 1983, they were still drawing like crazy. Was it all Bob Backlund? No, but he was the top guy and it worked. But, and this is why it was good that they took the title off of him, uh, December 26, 1983, the fans in Boston in particular, but other places too, were starting to turn on Bob. So you wanted to get in front of that before you, you had a full mutiny on your hands, put the title on someone else. And if it wasn't Hogan, it would have been, I don't know who, but it was time to move on from Backlund. But like I said, I thought they, they had it on him the right length of time. The Backlund thing I think you have to look at it from a double, you know, different perspective in the fact that, yeah, you could have had a, a another champion, whether it was Morocco, Valentine, Patera, whomever, uh, hell, Bobby Duncan Jr., Ivan Koloff, whoever you had in mind, but who was going to take that title off that heel in three months or in, or in six months? And, and the answer really was nobody. You had nobody really at that time there was a second baby face that was you know, viewed as being world title worthy. Because at that point in time, the only one he really had was you know, Pedro Morales, but he had, he had lost his fastball by, by the early 80s. So there was, and that, I don't know if that was purposely done by the WWF to uh, make Backlund the, the de facto number one no matter what, or if it was, it was poor planning. But nevertheless, at, at the face level, in terms of a world title threat, all they really had was Bob Backlund. Yeah, I, I at the time I would have bought Tony Atlas as WWF World Champion, believe it or not. Uh he's the only guy in the company that I would have I I would have put the uh, the title on long term, but if I were running things, I wasn't getting Hulk Hogan, uh what I would have done was I would have brought in Ted DiBiase and, and you know made him the Intercontinental Champion and put him in the spot where okay, we're we're grooming you for a WWF title run. All right, Thomas, my last question for you, and I thank you for being on show number 200. David Ferguson asks, your pick for a match versus The Undertaker at a WrestleMania during the streak era. What do you think, Thomas? Okay, so you have to replace a match, theoretically, The Undertaker had during the streak. So you look through WrestleMania 7, you wrestled Jimmy Smook in a very forgettable match, but who are you going to put in that match that's going to make it so memorable? Terry, you know, Tito Santana, Kerry Von Erich. Eh, yeah, they'll, they'll be better, but it's going to be remarkably better. Jake the Snake was fine. Really, with, with you know, King Kong Bundy uh, at that WrestleMania, you're know, not going to do much better. It comes down to two matches you would replace. 
One is WrestleMania 9 with Giant Gonzalez. And you could put Razor Ramon in that match. That would be my number two. My number one is the tag team match with The Big Show and Albert versus The Undertaker and uh, Nathan Jones. I would have scrapped that match and put The Undertaker in the main event against Kurt Angle. Oh, I could see that. That would that would be a good one. My pick, and you know what? I'm not sure if this really, because I don't think they were talking about the streak yet uh, by WrestleMania 9, but what I might have done rick flair wants to wants to leave he knows he's being you know lowered on the card so he wants to go back to atlanta this is the end end of 92 early 93 i say to him rick how about you stay another couple of months you get a big wrestlemania pay paycheck and it'll be your last wwf match in las vegas against the undertaker that's what I would have done had I been able to go back and, and change history and given Undertaker another big win. Uh, WrestleMania 9 versus Ric Flair. And again, you know, just talk Rick into staying another couple of months, which couldn't have been that hard. Yeah, it's interesting there, but I guess the thing I would look at then is what do you do? Do you, do you bring back Flair and Undertaker at WrestleMania 18 then and do it again? Or do you just put something else at 18 then? Oh, you do it again at 18, you know, and, and you can talk about, you know, hey, nine years ago, Ric Flair lost to the Undertaker, and now, you know, Ric, Ric Flair's got a new game plan, et cetera. Okay. Uh, yeah, I, I could definitely see that happening, but. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a really good question, and it, you have so many possibilities out there, but, you know, mine would have been do Ric Flair again. And you're right, maybe have another uh, match for Flair on WrestleMania 18. By the way, I, I did not like the WrestleMania 18 match. Thomas, as always, you have been a great guest. Thank you for being part of the 200th episode of Stick to Wrestling. Thank you, John. I'll be here for number 2000 as well. Thanks so much. All right, man. Take care. It's show 200. It's something special. Let's bring on the founder of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network, Mr. Brian Last. Brian, thank you for joining us. Oh, what a pleasure it is to be here, John. Episode 200, something special. It's nice to know that someone thinks of me as something special. Thank you. Something very special. We're going to break all kinds of ratings things, whatever they call them. You're Numbers. a popular guy. <laughs> I think they call them numbers. Well, thank you. We'll see how popular after this program. It may go in reverse. You never know. I mean, I, I remember when I first started doing Stick to Wrestling, like maybe 10 episodes after it had been released, I roll up my sleeves and I'm like, God damn it, I'm going to find out exactly how many people listen to this program. And like the internet just basically laughed at me. It's like, there's no way you're, <laughs> you're going to find out, dude. It's tough. All right. Uh, I'll tell you what. We have uh, harvested questions from our Stick to Wrestling universe. The first one is kind of more of a statement than a question, but let me read it from Kevin Elias. If you were to tell someone that WWE TV shows were about to get into something like this, the WWE is this evil family that owns a wrestling company and they get off on belittling and threatening to fire their wrestlers at every chance they get but for whatever reason it's these wrestlers lifetime dream to work for these people and endure working in this toxic environment because in spite of everything they love performing for the fans Ugh. on paper this makes absolutely no sense 
Why does the WWF continue with this nonsense for years now, more like decades now? Can't we just get back to the good old days of Jack Tunney being the impartial president of a sports organization? Brian, your thoughts. I was afraid he was going to say, can we get back to the good old days of Jack the Ripper? I didn't know where he was going. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I was waiting for it to go off the rails or something, but I don't see anything that's not somewhat agreeable about that. WWE has kind of had a set pattern for things for a generation now. I mean, it's over 20 years since the it late is. 90s. And unfortunately, I was thinking about that the other day because... I was watching a few things for a couple different other shows. At what what point did it just go with Vince? Like, okay, that's it. Everything we did out the window. Now it's this way forever. You know, they always tried to bring it back to like, let's have some realism, even in the ridiculousness of all of this bullshit. But then at some point it became, and I've seen this comparison before and it's brilliant, the Muppet Show. It's like you get to see... Ah. Raquel, Raquel Welch dance with Gonzo. But then you also get to see her backstage, like talking to Kermit in front of the camera about what she just did. And for some reason, they like honed in on this formula and they said, this is it forever together, whatever their motto is now. <laughs> that should be it. This is it forever together. And then it should be like, you're stuck. Until we sell to Fox. Until we sell to someone. Addressing what Kevin said, I mean, I agree with what he says. I think when now in 2022, when Vince gets on TV, it's fine. It's the founder. He's a little bit crazy. He's older, etc. Vince is fine. I've always heard that Shane was a really nice guy. But he should and probably will never be on TV again. We've all heard about what goes on that. I don't mean to attack anybody, but Stephanie McMahon, God, she is the worst television character on any show ever. She undermines whoever she's on TV with. And of course, everyone, everyone who participates in her segments has to treat her like a deity. And I hate it. Let me just jump in because I want to clarify to make sure I understand, but the audience too, what you just said. When you say Stephanie, I forget the exact wording, one of the worst television Blah, blah, blah of all time. Characters of all time. She's actually good as a performer. It's that every scripted role she has is cut the balls off all of these men, smile about it, and then leave. But she's good good in doing that. It's just it's awful what she's doing. Yeah, I mean, you know, whenever she comes out, she gets treated like the real star of the women's division, which she has no part of. And I, I read an interview with her maybe 10 years ago when she said, um, every time someone meets me and I'm not on TV, they're asking why I'm not on TV. It's like, Stephanie, that's how you treat people. Hey, why aren't you on TV? You're so great, even if you don't mean it. Yeah, she also says Andre the Giant was her best friend. <laughs> imagine every speech i dare you to find a speech she has given to like a non well there is no wrestling audience she's giving speeches to but a non-wrestling audience it's always a picture of her and andre from the wrestlemania one after party at the rainbow room and this story about how andre was her friend and it's sad when you really think like well that's great your best friend was andre you know whose best friend he wasn't his fucking daughter he's hanging well, out with you she's over there by herself 
That's Stephanie McMahon's story. She's Andre the Giant. He was her best friend. My best friend and confidant, Stephanie McMahon and Andre the Giant. <laughs> uh, Stephanie, uh. <laughs> <laughs> Best friend. Best friend. Uh, I, I never knew she actually called him that, but it doesn't surprise me. Her, oh, yeah, she, it was her best friend. All the guys who worked for my family, they were my best friends. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Uh, including especially Randy Savage. But anyway. Oh, that's awful. And you can't you can't prove anything. I, I, I can't prove anything. I can't prove anything. I, I don't know anything. I just heard something. Oh, who'd you hear oh. from? Uh, Meltzer. <laughs> <laughs> So 200 we're having fun look at this <laughs> wow. Don't, let me clarify dave said he got the information from someone who was reliable on a germany tour or something like that so he's repeating something else he heard just like i am but that's where i heard it that was like all the rage i want to say in like 2008 that smarmy little rumor all right well if you heard it that way you heard it in when did you hear it I want to say 2008, 2009. Okay, okay. But anyway. Yeah. You never heard that. I've heard the rumor. I've heard the story. I've heard certain people knew certain things. But I never heard anyone just flat out say, yeah, Dave Meltzer told me about it. He told me what (laughs) he, he didn't tell me. He, it was on, like, uh, the Observer website, and he just broke down, look, this is the rumor, and here's why it has some credibility. He didn't say, yeah, this happened. I want to make that perfectly clear to the sick to wrestling universe. You know what one of the things is that makes me question its validity? And I know this is silly, but, you know, there haven't been that many times where Randy Savage has really been focused on or mentioned since he passed. I mean, there was a tribute video when he passed, and... CM Punk was paying tribute for a while with his trunks. CM Punk with his trunks. Look at everything's rhyming today. Yeah. Regular Dr. Seuss over there. Yeah, I remember there was one promo where Stephanie was in the ring, and I, I don't remember why she was pandering to the raw audience, but she was naming people to get a reaction. And it went something along the lines of this. Ric Flair! And the people popped. Hulk Hogan and the people pop. Macho man Randy Savage. Ooh, yeah. Now, oh, I do remember this. If this was such a big issue, would she be doing that? And if I remember correctly, and I remember seeing this being like, holy shit, her husband's there, her dad's there. And that's my point. Would she be doing this if her dad was so upset about Randy Savage apparently on the way out saying, I'm going to fuck the boss's daughter and Germany. <laughs> That's the new detail. He didn't know. I don't know. The fact that she did that on the air. And the other thing is, how do you come out and listen? I've heard this uh, rumor for years. I just want to say I didn't fuck the macho man ever. <laughs> like, there's, there's really no safe ground here. Someone has to do it for her. She want to say, even Lanny Poffo won't say it's not true. So That's another thing. And I'm not saying it isn't true, it could be true. But even like they asked Lanny Poffo, he's like, you know, he doesn't answer any question about anything anyway. You can ask him anything and then try to like figure out what he said. He says nothing. He says absolutely nothing. And they ask him, he's like, well, uh, you know, uh, uh, things may be true. And whatever he says, he says nothing, but he doesn't shoot it down. 
But you know what? Uh, and we've spent <laughs> a lot of time on this. I mean, if someone asked, I have a brother. And if someone asked, hey, did your brother have sex with them? I don't know. Yeah, he goes the opposite way. He's like, ah, oh, well, I never talked to Randy about it. <laughs> Which I believe. Yeah, I believe it. All right. Chris Zauha asked, was there ever an angle or an event that turned you off so much that you considered stopping watching wrestling? Brian, how about you? Yeah, let me tell you something. Every time I see one of Chris Zaha's messages on Facebook, it makes me want to get rid of wrestling and turn off social media and run and hide nonstop with this ridiculous off-brand of crap humor. That turns me off the wrestling. Okay. I, I, I like Zao. I like him. No, He's I'm a kidding. I'm Kevin kidding. Nash fan. I'm a Kevin Nash fan. Did you know that, Brian? I like Kevin Nash. I'm busting chops, A. B, I knew it about Chris Zaha from his many, 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 many social media postings about it, but I did not know that about you. But, see, I'm one of the people I appreciate Kevin Nash, too. And I know we're not supposed to for a number of reasons, from wrestling philosophy to in-ring work to things he has said or done. But I actually, (laughs) Kevin Nash always seems to be like a wrestler you could actually get along with. He is a giant guy in real life. I have never really, I spoke to him so briefly, like two sentences, uh, but he is a giant. But I always thought he was a funny, charismatic guy, and he played basketball for the Tennessee Volunteers, so right there. Nothing would turn me off to wrestling itself, Chris. I mean, nothing, you know, there are plenty of promotions. If one of them does something stupid, I'd be like, all right, well, I'm not watching these guys anymore. But for me, The one thing that turned me off to two promotions in the 90s was the NWO. I mean, it gets looked back on fondly, but I mean, it was just Nitro was a nonstop get the NWO over at everyone else's cost thing. And I hated it. And I I finally I realized, hey, I don't have to watch Nitro. I, I I'm not obliged. And I stopped watching And then this garbage shows up on New Japan Pro Wrestling and it turned me off to New Japan as well. So that was the big one for me. You know, if I get answered seriously, there have been a few minor times. Like, there were months at a time where I just refused to watch WCW in 1990 or 91. I would go back after the fact and see it, but I just couldn't watch it live. But in 2000, a mix of the product being completely different. I mean, by 2000, everything had switched over completely to what things had been in like 97 or even 98. I wasn't crazy about things. WCW already under Vince Russo was really, really not good. And I just, I lost interest. So even though there was still like another year of popularity for me, I lost interest in 2000. And, I mean, I even remember a friend of mine showing up at my job at the time to show me the tape of Sid breaking his leg. I wasn't watching then. And then I got back into it like 2004. And I realized, you know, it took a little while, but I realized even if I don't like what I see, I enjoy following the business of wrestling. And I know enough people and I know enough things that I really can enjoy following the business of wrestling. And. That kind of drew me back in. So I had about three and a half, four years there where I got out of wrestling. Completely? No WWF or anything? Completely, 100%. Wow. Yeah, 100%. 
Okay, that that stuff I, I will watch WWF from like ninety nine two thousand, and I enjoyed it at the at the time. But like now, it's like oh my god, what were you? I mean, some of it's good, but some of it's like you know this is way over the top. I guess that's the difference between watching it when you're in your late twenties and watching it you know now that I'm in my fifties. But anyway, yeah, um, one of the things. Let me just say one of the things yeah. that pulled me back in was the wrestling nostalgia that they were actually starting to put out a mix between the Ric Flair book. And that's when I was working at Sony and Sony wonder was distributing the WWE DVDs. So I had access to anything I wanted at any time. Plus I had free gratis in my office. I could order whatever I wanted. And they started putting out, I think it was the greatest stars of the eighties. It was a three DVD set. And it was great. It was like Arn Anderson, Sergeant Slaughter, Jerry Lawler, Jimmy Snooker, Ric Flair, Roddy Piper. And it had even like bonus features because one of them was a completely incoherent Jimmy Snooker promo. I'll never forget. But it was that it was kind of the nostalgia shit that got me back into caring about stuff. Yeah, for me, especially when I stopped watching Nitro, I'm like, you know, why am I watching something that I don't like when I have stacks and stacks of tapes that I have not watched? It's something that I'm pretty sure I'm going to like. All right. Uh, Rick Nathan asks. Brian, can you name an angle or gimmick that most fans despise, but you're, that you're a fan of? You know, this is like a tougher question than it probably should be. I can't offhand think of something. It's one of those things, if it came up in conversation, I could point to it. But I can't think of anything offhand. Let me hear what you have to say. Maybe it'll trigger something. Well, I mean, my response is always... I'm going to give two that I always give out. The Mean Street Posse always cracked me up. I don't care what anyone says. But going a step further, just Joe. He has this locker room conversation with Hunter Hearst Helmsley. And finally, Helmsley's like, hey, who are you anyway? He goes, Joe. Joe who? And he goes, just Joe. And I was dying laughing. I thought that was the greatest thing ever. If I want to interject something new into this, Lanny Poffo is the genius. Okay, um, I guess on that wavelength, you know, it's a weird one, and there's a shelf life to the period, but when Fandango first came out, and he was insisting on everyone calling him Fandango, it was the stupidest and funniest thing at the same time, and there's one segment where he's supposed to wrestle, (laughs) he's supposed to wrestle like Lord Tenzai, or whatever Prince Albert's name was. And he refuses to, I think, until he'll dance, until Naomi will dance with him. (laughs) I mean, it's the stupidest thing. You can't even recap it logically. And it's amazing to think adults wrote it. But Fandango, when he first debuted, I did get a kick out of him. Fandango is one of those guys, and he reminds me just like someone else. Who is the guy? I think his name was Adam Rose. He had the party bus with the rosebuds. Is that him? That's him, yeah. You know, I see these segments and I'm like, okay, great. What happens when the segments end and you have to get this into the ring? And apparently in both cases, they never had an answer. Adam Rose is like, one of the best examples of something that worked kind of perfectly in NXT. And it was an NXT type of thing. It shouldn't have been on the main roster and it kind of died pretty quickly in the main roster. Yeah, I I guess we'll be talking more about that as the podcast goes on. Tom Dang asked, what is your holy grail of lost slash maybe exists 
wrestling footage. Brian, what do you think? Any studio stuff from Hawaii or Los Angeles or really anything in the TV era when they started doing really good promos and angles in the studio, like anything from, let's say, 64 through 1980 that's not in circulation. There's no like actual thing to pinpoint like this match, this angle, any of it. I've learned that whenever something pops up, there's always some promo by someone either you knew and you knew was great or you didn't know and you didn't know was great. And you're like, man, it's one of the greatest promos ever. There's a lot of that out there. There are a lot of the greatest promos of all time that no one has heard since. And I've seen enough shit to know that there are janitors who bring home tapes. There are people at television stations or TV studios that are wrestling fans that take stuff home. There are people that just are pack rats and keep everything, no matter if they care about it or not. So I always have a little bit of uh, faith that more stuff will turn up. I agree with you that there's got to be some addict, multiple addicts out there where there's a bunch of VHS tape or reels or whatever. And the family just, you know, cleans out grandpa's house and it's like, okay, what's this stuff? And they blow the dust off it and boom, there it is. Anyway, mine would be, I know Bob Backlund, I think Bob Backlund and Ric Flair from July 4th, 1982 is out there and I'm dying for them to finally release it so I could see how bad it allegedly was. Bruno versus Stan Hansen, same thing, except I haven't heard it was a terrible match. But if I had to pick one thing that I don't think exists, and maybe it does, but I don't think it exists, it would be Bill Watts turning on Bruno Sammartino in the 1960s. Yeah, you know, that would be a good one. And it's one of those things that were, you would think it wouldn't exist. It's not outrageous to think there's a chance. Yeah. It does somewhere. It really isn't. And I would love to see that. Yeah, that's a good one. I mean, when it comes to angles, I would love to see more television master quality heel Spiros Arion stuff from the moment he turned and then all of those promos. That's not I would- there. You know what? That was broadcast in the Northeast where there's just a huge population. I think there is a a better than slight chance that someone out there had a recording of it and just kept it and forgot about it. And like I said, maybe it's out there waiting to be discovered. I mean, I'm not being... I don't know, snide about being from the Northeast. Just we have a lot of people out there. There's a lot better chance uh, of that being around than, you know, something that aired on one station in Arkansas. That's true. And also we know the fact that wrestling fans are usually one of the first fan bases to accept and adapt to new technology when it comes to recording and capturing content, at least until the digital era when everything is now just one, two, three. So the idea of a wrestling fan would have a Betamax or a VHS recorder early on is not outrageous. It is not outrageous. I personally think, Brian, and Bill Watts disagrees with me, I think he would have made a great NWA champion. Uh, yeah, as long as they didn't let him talk about, like, race or... <laughs> True. <laughs> or business <laughs> ethics or whatever his, uh, things, uh, his thoughts are. I think... Watts could have been an interesting NWA champion. I always think, and I know you and I have talked about it before, about what if he had come back to New York either for another run in the 70s against Bruno or as a challenger for Backlund. I would be intrigued by that. The matches wouldn't have been great. He would have been just kicking and punching. It would have been Bruno-style match against Backlund. Absolutely. I actually, 
I would have really liked to have seen that. I would have liked to have seen his promos at that point in New York City. That would have been interesting. I mean, I saw a match uh, between Bill Watts and Jack Briscoe where Watts was doing commentary and he was such a great heel. He was so condescending. He was so, you know, I am so much better than Jack and Jerry Briscoe. Look at little Jerry Briscoe trying to get involved. Uh, It was fantastic. I think he's the greatest commentator, maybe uh, uh, the greatest commentator who was a wrestler, I should say, because Lance Russell, you can't compare him to like someone like them, but. In some ways you can because he did play-by-play, and Bill Watts is just, I know you're probably right there with me, just the greatest on commentary ever. He is. He he knew how to present what he was trying to get the fans to purchase tickets for. Can you imagine some of those promos when he turned heel in the 60s when he was feuding with Bobo Brazil? You know, I think that was the last feud he had before he had to leave the Northeast. Like, I want to hear those promos. Those must have been outrageous. Especially given the era, yes. Um, I mean, the 60s were all about race. Anyway, Jamie Ward asks, has anyone ever heard why the Polish prince, Ed Wyskowski, was to and done in the WWF in 1983? I actually think it was 1982, but I could be wrong. Brian, have you ever heard anything? I want to say I have, and I don't remember the story, sadly, but it's come up somewhere that I heard it. In my head, I just close my eyes and I think about what Ed Wyskowski looked like in Mid-South Wrestling a year before that or right before that. And I certainly can't see him fitting into the WWF at that time. But what about you? You're really on the pulse of what happened in the world of the WWF in this period of time. The worst part is I was I was not not really hanging around Wiskowski, but I had like a 10 minute conversation with him and I never brought this up. I never asked, hey, is it okay if I ask if you know why your WWF tenure was so short? I mean, he Wiskowski, I don't think would have been terrible in the WWF had he stayed. He was a really big guy and it was a perfect setup for an underneath feud against Ivan Putsky. I mean, it was as natural as could be, and it didn't happen. It may be one of the only times that Vince McMahon made a decision based on not wanting to win worst match of the year in the Observer. (laughs) That one really could have been a contender. All right. Brian, Conor McGrath wants to know, what was the most surprisingly great match that you have seen live? Ooh, I mean, there've been a lot. You were there for one of the big ones I think of, John, which is Dick Slater and Bob Orton versus the Mongolian Stomper and Ron Garvin at the Night of Legends, or not the, uh, yeah, it was the Night of Legends. Night of Legends in uh, April, April. In August of 1994, that match I didn't expect much from because we had just been seeing Dick Slater on WCW. Ron Garvin wasn't even dying his hair anymore. The Mongolian Stomper did start to show his age. Bob Orton looked exactly like Bob Orton, but even Bob Orton, everyone now accepts, oh, Bob Orton's the greatest, blah, blah, blah. He's the greatest in the ring. He's smooth. There was a time where it was like, hey, he's gotten lazy. (laughs) There really was. There really was. So I wasn't expecting much. And those guys like tore the house down. In the building, it was great. I loved that match. I remember that match. I loved that match. Orton, when he came to WCW in 1989, I was like, you know, what are these people thinking? He is washed up. And then I saw this weird match from, I think it was called AWF Wrestling in Chicago. I want to say oh. 90, 
four. Yeah, I know exactly he, what you're talking about. He had a really good match out of nowhere against uh, Tito Santana. Like these guys weren't having all well, they they weren't having good matches eight years earlier, but they pulled out a really good match out of thin air in '94. Think about that. So what about you, John? In the building, match you saw that you weren't expecting much from that you you couldn't believe how good it was when it was done. Two matches I want to name, and they're from the exact same card. I want to say October 1987, out of nowhere, we had a great strike force versus the Islanders match. And I think the Islanders are one of the all-time great underrated teams. No one talks about them. On the same match, we actually had a good match, a really good match between Butch Reed and and an immobile superstar, Billy Graham. I don't know how they pulled it off. I'm not saying it was great. It was like two, (laughs) two and a quarter stars, but we're going in looking at negative stars, and it was was actually pretty good. Uh, I don't want to go off on a rant on Butch Reed in the WWF, so let's move on to the next question. Butch Reed was terrible in the WWF. I was shocked when Doom became a good team in 1990. I thought he was beyond finished. You know, I always in my head, and I know this didn't happen. Let me start by saying that. But in my head, I have a conversation I picture. If you remember WrestleMania 3, Jesse Ventura's like commentary. He's like, you know who can't wait to see this match? Barry Blaustein. And that was Coco Ware versus Butch Reed. And I always picture Barry Blaustein having a conversation with Jesse where he says, oh, you know the match I'm really looking forward to? And Jesse's like, well, what do you think? Randy Savage and Steamboat or Hogan Andre? No. Butch Reed versus Coco Ware. Really? Why? Oh, did you ever see these guys in Mid-South? They were great. And they went out there, they got six minutes, and the match was over. <laughs> that was the match Barry Blaustein was looking forward to. Oh, man. I, I actually don't remember that, and I just watched WrestleMania three like two weeks ago, like two and a half times I watched it, and that one eluded me. But anyway. Jesse name drops everyone he met in Hollywood. While doing commentary, because all of a sudden he's like, what about the Barry team? And Gorilla's like, what are you talking about? He's like, Blaustein, no, no, not Blaustein, Bloom and Braverman. He's talking about his agents now. Like, even Gorilla doesn't know what he's talking about. It's funny. I thought Jesse, aside from that, did a really good job at WrestleMania 3. And I thought Gorilla Monsoon did a good job, which I am not a big fan of Gorilla Monsoon's commentary, and he he pulled out his best best night that night. Gorilla Monsoon's best is not with Heenan. That's his most lighthearted stuff, and maybe the stuff people have the most warm feelings about. His best stuff is with Jesse Ventura. Could not agree more. He and Heenan were just out there clowning around and sometimes taking away from the match, and he and Jesse did not do that. That's right. Uh, All right. Matt Crowder wants to know, Brian, what's your favorite match that is universally disliked, but you absolutely like? This is another one where it's tough for me to think of something. I mean, and here's the thing. What's universally disliked? I'm not sure. Um, Hogan versus Andre. WrestleMania 3. I like that match. I like that match. That, that's mine. I have it written right in front of me. Hogan versus Andre, WrestleMania 3. And we just talked about WrestleMania 3 on Stick to Wrestling, like 195 or something. But in a vacuum, that match stinks. But, I mean, the atmosphere is out of control. 
I once saw a version they put on, uh, I think it was on DVD, where it was just the Steadicam. None of the floor cam shots. So it was watching that match just the Steadicam. And it was really about paying attention to the crowd. And it was fascinating. Especially when he set up the body slam and you, I don't know, when you see just the crowd for the whole match, it was really, really cool. I will have to check that out at some point. If I had to pick a a show that is universally disliked, but I absolutely like it, would be Starcade '89. Everyone hates that. And you I don't know like why. that shit? What the fuck? I like that shit. Oh come on! I liked it at the time, and I like it now. The night they ruined Muda is that what you, is that what the tagline was? The night someone, we chased Muda back to Japan. Someone had to do all the jobs in the tournament, and they were going to turn Muda babyface anyway. If you're a heel and you're about to get turned, you, you do a lot of jobs. Well, I can't say that. Uh, I'm not going to pick Starcade 89. You know what? Uh, I was going to say, like some of the spring of 94 uh, WCW pay-per-views that were awesome. I mean, there's two of them. They were. And Slamboree. It surprised me how good they were, and it surprised me how much I loved William Regal, Lord Stephen Regal, versus Larry Zabisco. That whole feud and those matches. They had Dustin Rhodes against Jimmy Golden. Jimmy Golden was older at this point, and they pulled out a great match out of nowhere. Yeah, I agree. All right. Jeff Sims wants to know, Brian, what is your favorite incarnation of the Horseman post-1988? Oh, oh boy, post-88. Uh-huh. My favorite. I hate assigning a favorite to this group of delinquents. Mm. Now, you're and not also, going I mean, with, what, you're not going with Junior Horseman, Barry, uh, Kendall Windham? Technically, that's what that's the beginning of 89. So that would count. I'm not, definitely not going with that. No. And anything with Hiro <laughs> Matsuda. After that, they had Sting with Ole and Arn. Definitely ain't going with that. After that, it's just a mess. It's Flair and Wyndham and Arn and Sid with Ole and Woman. And then Woman goes away. And then Ole goes away. And then Flair goes away. <laughs> and then the horsemen go away. And then they come back with Roma. Which I always feel bad about that because I actually think Paul Roma was so talented and putting him in that slot just killed him. It did. That, I mean, it's crazy to think of it this way, but it was like putting Terry Taylor as the Red Rooster. There was no recovery. That was almost as bad as him doing all those jobs on WWF TV that everyone blamed him not being a fit on. It was more than that. It was the wrong thing in every way. So I'm not going to pick that. Okay. <laughs> they came back with Hillman and Benoit, and this is where it gets tricky because I hate to pick anything with Benoit because I'm disgusted by Chris Benoit. <sighs> you know what? Yeah, I, I guess I have to do it. Like Just that period, 96, 97, where, believe it or not, Steve Mongo McMichael was in the Horseman with them. Yeah, And Flair started losing his mind on promos. I mean, that's the thing. Flair now is such a joke. He's such a cartoon version of himself. That version of him started on Nitro in the late 90s. Yeah, it's been like that for 25 years now. Um, I'm going to talk about Benoit a little bit in a minute. I mean, my 
gut reaction to this question was capital letters, none. The horseman needed to go away. And yeah, I was I fine. Yeah, I was fine with the Sting, Flair, Anderson's horsemen as long as they were baby faces because they were getting the right response. Horsemen as heels has half the arena cheering for them more than that in the Northeast. You can't have that. You need to get away with that. Then I calmed down a little bit, Brian. And I said, you know what? The Nitro era for Horsemen were fine because they didn't, you know, they, they, you didn't need to feed the entire promotion to the Horsemen. They weren't mid-card, but they weren't main event either. So basically, I was fine with Flair, Arn, Pillman, and Benoit, especially Pillman being the loose cannon. I found that entertaining. And the other thing you have to say, and again, I hate that it's Chris Benoit, but this was a case where the Horsemen actually did elevate someone. Because we could all say the newsletters loved Chris Benoit and Japanese wrestling fans loved him, or maybe old Calgary fans, but by and large, no one knew who he was or gave a crap in the States. This is a case of him being in the horseman. He really did get rub off that. It really did make it so that those WCW fans instantly accepted him. And by 96, he's having matches that they're going nuts for. That's actually a really good point. Benoit was really elevated by getting that spot in the horseman. A, a lot of, as you were saying, you know, I mean, the fans rejected Steve McMichael. They rejected Paul Roma. They didn't reject Chris Benoit. Yeah. And it's sad that we never really got to see how things were going to flesh out with Pillman in the horseman. Because remember, they had this whole weird dynamic where Arn slapped them on TV and Benoit sold it. He was like on Pillman's side a little bit. And we never really got to see how the whole thing was going to play out. No, we didn't. Chris Benoit, I have a maybe controversial opinion on this. Do oh you boy. think, well, I, I, I'm not saying I know this. I'm not a neurologist. Hey, Lou, edit, not. edit me off this episode, Lou. Whatever he's going to say, just take me off this episode. <laughs> do you think, do you think he had been, he had suffered so much brain damage that it was more that and less him being evil. I'm not saying this is the case. I'm saying that I'm open to the idea of it. Uh, I'm I not condoning what he did. Don't get me wrong. And, and, and I'm not accusing you of that, uh, but I'm glad you said that out loud. Yeah, I'm glad you said it out loud. I think even if you look beyond the concussions, this guy did have a reputation. Now, the guys who loved him loved him. But he could also be a little bit of a bully. And I think a lot of things rubbed off on him from the New Japan Dojo, from Dynamite Kid. Yep. And I think mentally, you know, before concussions or any sort of related issues, I think he already kind of was trained mentally to be a little bit more animalistic. Uh, for lack of a better term, than the average person. And the other thing is, it's easy. Again, I don't want to excuse any of this. But it's easier to accept some of that to me if he didn't kill both of them and then kill himself. Yeah. I, I you know, and I, we don't know exactly what, caused him to do all that but he did a lot to the point where you know it's it's not just in the moment and in the in the 
passion of the moment. I hate to use the word passion. It's probably not the right word, but I don't know. I, I, I have a real tough time with Benoit. No, and again, I'm not excusing him. I'm not, you know, anything like that. And I did hear from someone in the business. When did I hear this? Like before he got to WCW, I think he might have already been in ECW. His exact words were, Benoit is an asshole. He tries to be Dino. Meaning Dynamite Kid. Yeah, no. I mean, there are people who worked in Calgary who will tell you uh, similar things even before he was like known internationally. um, Well, he was already probably known in Japan. He was already in the dojo there. But, you know, he had that little bit of a reputation. And I don't know. Sometimes people are just cruel. I mean, there is that dichotomy that sometimes is really hard to digest. Eddie Graham did all these wonderful things, all these wonderful civic things. And he was also a sadistic, cruel bastard. You know what I mean? Like it's it's a hard thing to balance. uh, And hopefully that cruelty doesn't go too far with Benoit. It went, you know, beyond. Yeah. I, like I said, just throwing it out there and, and like you even way before he became famous. I mean, you just heard some of the Benoit stories. Moving on to happier places. Michael C. Hulse asks, did the after magazines help or hurt pro wrestling with their fabricated stories and articles? Is there a need for something similar today? Your thoughts, Brian. Oh, wow. Throw that at me that quickly. It's interesting. A few weeks ago, help or hurt, and you know neither is in an option there. Where you know, like with the horseman, none. <laughs> Maybe it had no effect at all, because if it helped wrestling, you're arguing that those magazines being on the newsstand in some way promoted professional wrestling, whether it caused someone to gain an interest in it, or it caused someone to continue their interest in it. Your argument is those magazines helped wrestling and then people bring it home and read these kayfabe stories. And that helped wrestling because they weren't even in on the storylines of the TV show. They were in on the storylines of London publishing. Yes. The argument for it hurt wrestling, I guess beyond any bloody covers or anything, we're actually just speaking about the content of the fucking magazine is they just kind of went into business for themselves and they wrote whatever totally they did. wanted about everything. But I don't know if anyone ever paid enough attention to that, at least at that time, that it would have hurt anything. No, I mean, my answer is that if you didn't like them, you didn't buy them, so it didn't make a difference. And if you liked them, it fed the mania. I was literally in sixth grade reading a copy of Inside Wrestling. I want to say it was the April 1977 edition when they did a hot seat interview with Baron Von Raschke. And as a 12-year-old, I figured out it was fiction because the the conversation in real life would have taken about two minutes, yet they're talking about how Baron Von Raschke flew to New York City just to do this. I'm like, impossible. I was, like I was a little when, kid. Yeah, it was like, too, when they copied the Playboy interview photos, so it looked like the person was actually sitting there thinking about things and saying things to the <laughs> interviewer. That's my other favorite touch of those interviews. <laughs> I never I to this day I never have thought of that that you know all this guy sitting there looking all insightful and it's like yeah that's a work of course it is but I just never noticed until right now Brian 
Yeah. Anyway, Michael Faulkner asks, do we know that Bill Watts loaded his television programming like no one did until the days of the Monday Night Wars? Do you believe that helped or hurt his live show business? Uh, I don't think it hurt his live show business because if it did, he wouldn't have done it. He was more in tune to dollars and cents until the end of 85, mid 85, and he lost. He got too swept up, swept up, and I have to go national. I'll get Dallas. I'll be able to do all these things that he lost sight of the real game. So that's what I think. All right. I mean, I you would think on the surface it would help. I mean, better TV would equal better ratings, would equal better attendance. But I have also read. I think it was in the observer that there is less correlation between attendance and ratings than one might think. Interesting. And you know, the other thing to think about again, off the top of my head, maybe it's because of the room in Tulsa, but it feels like they hot shotted way more angles again, off the top of my head in like 86 than they did in 84. Now, 84, you got main event matches. You know, rock, the first Rock and Roll Midnight is just a like seven-minute match on Mid-South TV. But by 86, you're like every week on that show, there's just a wild brawl with the same people over and over again. Yes. Quite frankly. And I know you're not supposed to say that. It's supposed to be just like, oh, UWF was the greatest. I don't know. I could see why those fans got sick of that roster, to be quite honest with you. So... I think that, you know, that's the thing. There's a difference between say like everything with Watts is like up to 84. And then after the success of 84, seeing what's happening to the rest of the wrestling world and deciding he's going to do what he's going to do. I think 85, 86 is kind of like everything. You lose sight of what's really going on. Yeah. I mean, Watts at the end did two things that kind of blew my mind. Number one. He had all three of his titles change hands on one TV show, which is unheard of. Yeah, that was the fall of 86. I mean, when you really think about it in terms of when he sold, I mean, that's, you know, less than half a year before that. And he had all three titles change hand, including. Was that where Terry Gord didn't even wrestle, right? It was a Uh forfeit. Yeah. Yeah, it was a forfeit. And uh, and then, you know, he went back. Things weren't going well, and he went back to what he knew, which was pushing all of the big guys. Big guys meaning one-man gang is one world's heavyweight champion, which did not – I don't think anyone bought that. Uh, brought in Leroy Brown, the 1986 version of Leroy Brown is one of his tag team champions. Brought in Savannah Jack, who I kind of liked and made him the TV champion, yeah. even though he was – he was raw as could be, but I, I mean, he had some charisma, but still, those are, you know, three really big guys that I named and, you know, watches always went back to the big guys. But even like, you know, the newsletters, you go back to 86, there's a lot of people ranting and raving about Buddy Roberts work and he really did have a good year in the ring. Well, look at him. You know, if you're one of those people that complains about wrestler physiques, go look at Buddy Jack. In 1986 in the ring, he looked like shit. So in 84, you've got a roster filled with some big guys who are over, like a Jim Duggan, a junkyard dog. You have Butch Reed, who had gotten there not, you know, that long in advance of 84, but was already over as a top heel. And you bring in all these young, good-looking, fast-moving guys. 
And then you look at what the roster is a couple of years later, it completely went in reverse. Like it went right back to everything it was before then, instead of embracing that and going forward with it. And of course, the other problem was that Dusty and Crockett took the entire 1984 Mid-South roster with them to the Carolinas. That is a good point. And I mean, I, I from what I've always heard, mid-80s, you made more money in JCP, or let's say post-85, yeah. you made more money in JCP than in Mid-South. And one reason it has been said is because watches kept all the money. All right. Uh, let me see. Pete Pingle asks, who is the one wrestler you thought was going to be the next big megastar, but he, she just never got over? Oh, boy, you do this one first. I mean, when you want to use the word megastar, Shayna Baszler. I mean, they could have made a fortune off of her. And second place is Sasha Banks. And it's something that you had talked about earlier. The WWE just cannot transition their NXT potential superstars uh, into major league stars. It's like they just make them another one of a hundred people on the roster. And oh, I am so serious when I'm, if you had given me the book, even at like 50, whatever years old, I could have made a lot of money with Shane and Baszler in 2020 when they brought her up or 2021, whenever it was and go back five years, Sasha Banks was as hot as could be. And instead they make her, you know, they just sucked all the juice out of her. They made her part of some lame faction and they, they didn't let her do the things that got her over in NXT. So I have completely lost faith in those people. And I'm, I'm not just saying that I will never get excited about an NXT wrestler again. Boy, I had an answer, and then I was listening to you, and I got thrown off because I realized I think Sasha Banks is from Boston. This may be a hometown thing that John's got going on here. No, nah, it really isn't. She <laughs> is from Boston, but, I mean, she she was just perfect to get that. First, she's a heel. She's a badass heel, and then they turn her baby face, and they, they just completely blew the whole thing. You know, it's hard to think of any specific person in the last decade or so just because i haven't had too much faith in the system itself so it's like i'm always surprised when someone becomes a big star as opposed to i expect them to become a big star who did i think would become big or was i sure would be big that it didn't happen to rocky Maivia? is it can i pick him didn't really happen for him ah right didn't happen to rocky Maivia. (laughs) happened to the rock uh trying to think i can't think of a there was a time where I thought Shane Douglas was going to do more. And it wasn't even when he went to ECW. It was when he went to the WWF and he was there in early 91 and they started using him a little bit. And then it was when he returned to WCW in early 93. I was like, man, this guy, like the dudes is now a long time ago. He's teaming with Steamboat. He's doing good. So it's before ECW. I actually thought Shane Douglas was kind of like on the road finally. And then. You know, he left again to become a teacher or a doctor or whatever he was going to do, and then he showed up at ECW. I was so high on Shane Douglas the exact same time frame you were referring to. I actually liked him before the Dynamic Dudes when he was like in Continental and he did a little bit in Mid-South. And he came to the WWF and he didn't really he he wasn't yet not being pushed, if that makes any sense. He had just gotten there and they hadn't figured out what they were going to do with him. And I was talking to someone who was in the wrestling business and I expressed that 
that opinion. I think the WWF might have something with Shane Douglas. And this guy knew Shane Douglas. He's like, yeah, not that fucking guy. Those are his exact words. Wow. So Shane had started in long before he got to ECW. He yet this guy, you know, this was a a nice person I'm talking about. And he just had that like reaction when I, as soon as I brought up the name Shane Douglas. All right, Brian, we are going to end on a big question from Edward Whipkey. And we're being asked to speculate here, but here we go. What would Vince McMahon senior have done if superstar Billy Graham had OD'd and died while he was world wrestling federation champion? He would have picked up the phone and said, Angelo, can you send someone over there to take care of this? I don't want anything in the papers. Nice. I like that answer because. Uh, my- yeah, well, no, I'm, I'm half joking, but it's a weird question. It is. I mean, if, you listen, if you listen to Billy Graham, he was taking every drug ever, forever, always, <laughs> uh, forever together. Um, if he had died as world champion. I think Gorilla Monsoon would have put an article in the Philadelphia newspaper. I think that's, it's a weird question. Do you do a phantom title switch and do you rush it on the backland? Even though you're not done with the one year build the backland. If you do a phantom title switch, do you get it back on Bruno? What do you think, John? Well, First of all, I I, re- I don't know why I threw this out. I was so crazy to throw this out. I just made a mess out of it and said, oh, I'm getting rid of this. Someone who worked in a law office who was defending someone against Superstar Billy Graham's uh, lawsuit claims sent me a deposition that Superstar Billy Graham had taken. And it was like 300 pages. It was crazy. And in the deposition, Superstar Billy Graham said that the the night before a title defense at Madison Square Garden, he actually wound up in the hospital on an OD. So this is not a crazy question. And Graham, you know, said in the deposition, you know, I I have to leave the hospital right now. I cannot miss uh, this show at Madison Square Garden. So this happened the night before an MSG show. So the question is not a crazy question. Okay. I think it depends on how major a story it it would have become. I mean, I think it would have been a major story, to be honest with you. you know, a, a pro athlete dies uh, from an OD, the, the world champion. I think it could have been. I really, I'm not. I well, it depends. I'm, well, let yeah. me stop you. OD on what? Because depending on what it is would depend on how it's actually worded in the newspapers in the late 70s. Okay, I mean, do you think it would have been they would have let us know that, hey, it was recreational drugs? Because if it was and that became a major story and I could see that happening, I mean, that might have been the end of the WWF, like right then and there. No, I'm not not letting my kids watch that. And if the story caught on nationally. Perfect time to get Bruno out there. Oh, these these guys with their needles and their drug addict. (laughs) Bruno, do your whole act. Go. That would have been good damage control if enough people had remained around to see it. I mean, in the 70s, Brian, I didn't think athletes used any kind of recreational drugs ever. I mean, I was shielded from that. What did you think 
because based on my knowledge of you, and correct me if I'm wrong, you didn't get the newsletters yet, but you were getting the magazines and you were always inquisitive and tried to look for more answers. What did you think when you heard the Rick McGraw news? Oh, I didn't get the newsletters yet. And here's the thing. All I got was he died. That was it. He died. Oh, wait. No, he died of a heart attack. And I was so right. naive to think that, you know, okay, well, this wasn't caused by steroid abuse. Like, I could not picture Rick McGraw being the party animal that we found out he eventually was. So I would have been shocked. But I, like I said, I, I didn't find out until like 86, 87. I think that's what it would have been. It would have been superstar Billy Graham, Wayne Coleman, professional wrestler was found today in a midtown hotel of a heart attack. No matter what it was, it would have been put as that. You, you know what? You, you you just answered the question. You're exactly right. That's exactly what would have happened. I've talked about this before. I had no idea, no idea what was going on or what went on with Jimmy Snuka and Nancy Argentino until not even until I started getting the, the newsletters. Like it started coming out maybe 10 years ago that, hey, this guy definitely murdered his girlfriend. Yeah, it's uh, that's the thing. It's like not everything. And even the people who knew, I mean, I remember in the 90s, I mean, he was on shows that I was at. And people knew about it, but no one actually knew, knew like it was I heard he did something with his girlfriend. And then people would always get the two stories confused where he got into the fight with the dogs and where he actually murdered his girlfriend. So, you know, because there's another hotel incident, whatever, like a month, two months before that. One of them's kind of humorous when you take out the idea that he was beating the shit out of his girlfriend. But news didn't travel the same way. So now we're going a few years before then. And again, between the two things, I brought it up before in a joking fashion. Gorilla Monsoon goes in his regular column in the Philadelphia newspaper and says that superstar Billy Graham died. What did he say he died of? Do you remember? Was it cancer or was it heart cancer. attack? Cancer. Cancer. And Cal Rudman was on TV talking about superstar Billy Graham's death, saying, oh, at the end, it was so sad. He was like a toothpick. <laughs> That's incredible. That's incredible. <laughs> No, uh, it was always I, I always laughed the idea that Gorilla Monsoon would not retract that story because uh sorry superstar will make me look bad and that the Graham Backlund matches did not draw because the fans thought they were foisting a fake superstar Billy Graham on them. Yeah, I had a simple solution for that. Get rid of the mustache <laughs> and put on a different pair of trunks. It would have changed everything. Uh, but that was in a dark place, brother. It's a, it's a weird, dark place. He looked older there than at any other point in his life, including now. <laughs> oh, Brian, and I, and I don't know if I ever tried, told you this. I came close to talking superstar Billy Graham into going to a New York Mets game with me in 1991, and his one of his handlers like talked him out of it. Ooh, 91, that was a, not a good team. That was not a good team at all. Well, they, they won. And the Reds pitcher tore up his jersey on the way to the dugout after the Mets won in spectacular fashion. I forget the guy's name. But anyway, Brian, thank you for being on show number 200. You were one of the top people I wanted. Everyone, everyone loves you on Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Thank you for being on, sir. 
Oh, it's an honor to be here and congratulations on 200 episodes and congratulations to you and to Lou, all the hard work that Lou does on this show. Can't forget about that. And uh, really proud of the success of the show. A lot of people love this show and look forward to it each and every week. And I hope you invite me back again, maybe for episode 300 or 400 or dare I say 500. But uh, what a long, strange trip it's been. Thank you for having me here, John. Oh, you're very welcome. Now, before you go, I'm going to throw you a little bit of a curveball. You're you're not ready for this, but I wanted to get your genuine reaction. Brian, pizza toppings. What's up? Oh, come on. <laughs> I can't. I can't. I can't talk to anyone nowadays or appear anywhere without someone bringing this up. I thought I had, sca- I had escaped. We're just I am a done. common person who says common things. Pizza toppings are unnecessary if you have a really good pizza there's nothing better than perfection and perfection is a perfectly done regular i hate to use the word regular it should just be a pizza slice a regular cheese pizza slice sauce crust cheese now you could mess that up and a lot of people do and it tastes like crap oh this crust is crap oh there's too much crust oh this sauce there's barely any sauce or the sauce sucks or the cheese sucks. If the cheese sucks, you're really screwed. Yeah. Then I understand adding toppings, but when you have a good, and now they call it a New York style slice. When you have a good slice of pizza, you don't need toppings. When you have a perfectly done saucy enough slice of Sicilian, you don't need toppings. However, if you live in Louisville, Kentucky, and you don't have the options that we are blessed with here in the Northeast, I could understand why your pizza palate would have taken a wrong turn. Brian, I, I, I'm going I'm going to say something that might surprise you. I, as you know, or, or am originally from New York and up here in Nashua, New Hampshire, we really do have good pizza options. And I'm not just saying that because I say it about anywhere. When I lived in Manchester, their pizza sucked, man. I mean, ordering Pizza Hut was ordering the good pizza up there. Nashua really has good pizza, more than one pizza place. Honest to God. Okay, you haven't added your two cents. You've built up your, I guess, sample, your sample sample. pool there. But you haven't said what you think. Let's hear what you think. I think this, that I agree with you that the best pizza is the one where uh, the the cheese pizza that you fold up and you eat and put in your mouth and eat it. However, it's like steak. If you make, you don't have to make the steak the same way every time. You don't make it your favorite way every time. I like to have pizza. I like to order pizza like twice a month. And occasionally, just to change it up a little bit, I will get like a Sicilian pizza with, you know, uh, bacon, hamburger and sausage. And that just like I said, just a change of pace. But generally, I agree with you. If I were on a desert island and I can only have one, it would be the pizza you described. All right. I mean, you should have put over the other stuff. I was very close to telling Lou, Lou, forget it. I was lying earlier. Don't take me out of the show. Take John out of the show. <laughs> Leave all me. But, uh, As it should be every week. Brian, I'm looking forward to the next 605 Super Podcast. And thank you again for having me, for being on our show. <laughs> thank you for having me, John. It's a pleasure to be here. An honor to be here. Looking forward to the baseball episode, uh, assuming that comes out after this one, which it might not. 
I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Also, if that was the outro or not, I'm just <laughs> I keep talking. <laughs> and that concludes show number 200 of Stick to Wrestling. We have gone over 200 minutes, and I want to thank everyone for listening. I want to thank our guest, Thomas Bain, Max Levy, and the great Brian Lass for contributing to this episode of Stick to Wrestling. I thought it was a really good one. I want to thank Luke Hippelman, our producer, for all the great work he does. He had three and a half times more stick to wrestling than he usually gets. So thank you, Lou. And thank you for being flexible uh, with my schedule or my illnesses, as it were. Uh, I thank everyone again for listening. I want to thank Brian Last for giving me this, this opportunity. And this has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. See you next week. This concludes our podcast day. Thank you.